People are struggling to have conversations and connect with others that they don't completely agree with on every topic. And I think that's probably the biggest problem that we need to try and solve is how after all this division and after all this separation, do we end up bringing people together again? And what does unity really look like? New Zealand faces some pretty big issues. First one is COVID in the aftermath. There's no getting away from that. Second is racial division. It's been ginned up and it's dangerous. Another issue that maybe people haven't got their head around yet is digital currency. What form does that take? Is it programmable? Will it be used to manipulate behaviour and patterns of behaviour? Those questions need to be asked and answered. How can you have fair, open, democratic government by people who are appointed? It's a ridiculous idea. And if that idea is taken to its zenith, then this country is in real trouble because democracy, one person, one vote, where every vote is of equal value, has got to be the foundation of a modern New Zealand. What's true, what's not true, how our kids are to be educated. And, you know, I have a great fear for the future. I think we know from history where this could end up. Jaspreet Bopperai and Don Nicholson with Greenwashed on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Good morning and welcome back to Greenwashed with me, Jaspreet, and my co-host, Don Nicholson. Thank you so much for joining us again this week. Our number is 2057 for any feedback you'd like to send as the show's rolling and our inbox is inbox at the rate realitycheck.radio. Hi, Don. Good to be back here. It's good to be back. And after a brilliant week in the South, I mean, listeners, we both live in the deep South and uh, yeah, it's been a purple patch of weather, as they say, and uh, long may it continue. Uh, Sad for uh, others up the country, but uh, in the East Coast again, we think of them, our thoughts are with with them. But, you know, Southland's normally in the gun at this time of the year and we've had a fantastic June. Absolutely. Good thinking of mowing the lawn once again, and that's unheard of in, towards the end of June down here in Western Southland. Yeah, now, probably probably not unheard of, but um, unheard of since you've been around. I mean, I recall doing that sort of thing years ago too, but yeah, those of us are a bit long in the tooth can remember a bit more than you can. You're showing your age, Don, not be used to that. <laughs> but in any case, isn't it a wonder that either of us is even here oh, this week? God. It's it's incredible that we're here because that little little lady from the Scandinavian uh, countries had us basically. We're in terminal mode today. Um, five years ago, she warned us, didn't she? She did on June the twenty first, twenty eighteen. Greta Thunberg tweeted. She said, "A top climate scientist is warning that climate change will wipe out all of humanity unless." We stop using fossil fuels over the next five years. So that date has been and gone in the last week. And we are still here. Wonders we're will never cease. Wonders will never cease. I mean, um, there's plenty of people that have perpetrated or spread doomsday mythology over over time. Um, it's She's just the, the youngest and the most recent, perhaps. Although we have a couple of people giving feedback, or one in particular that's a bit concerned about our denialist uh, attitude with regard to emissions. But, you know, I perhaps should ask the TAB to put a price on it and see what 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 they're willing to uh, put up as odds. 
that this thing's got legs. But but on the whole, we've had some good feedback last week, especially with the interview with Patrick from uh, West Coast Minerals. Yeah, he he got some really good feedback. Yeah, so I don't. A couple of texts came through without any names, so I'll read them out. Wonderful interview with Patrick. So informative. Thank you, Stuart from Otago. All of the minnows add up to 60% of the global emissions. Don't they just do it? Yeah, well, they they might, but it's irrelevant. Um, anyway, that's just me, Stuart. I'm sorry, I am. I am a denialist, as you labelled me. <laughs> Sheridan, I just read, I just got a podcast that you played after your 12th of June live show. This man was speaking on ESGs. Would you be able to give his name? By the way, I find your show to be a wealth of information. Love the forum. MSM is dead to me. Thank you so much, Sheridan. Very kind words. I believe you are referring to James Lindsay from New Discourses. So James Lindsay is a U.S. political commentator, writer, a mathematician, and as he calls himself, a professional troublemaker. You can find him on New Discourses on the web. And yeah, his, his talks are quite detailed, quite insightful, and thought-provoking. I've, you know, played this podcast more than uh, a few times out here. Mm. Uh, the next the next one, hey, experts, you have not once spoken of geoengineering and its effect. Is this Rodeo Clown Radio? Well, <laughs> I, I'm i not quite sure how to take that, but in, the, in, in effect, our, our guest today is going to um, have a wee bit of um, a few minutes talking about geoengineering. So let's see if that satisfies you. Yeah, yeah, we'll be having uh, Professor Jeff Tuffy from Auckland University, Department of Chemical Engineering. He is a professor who has, you know, he's been teaching for the last 40 years, but uh, he's also a practical man who's put forth quite a few processes, models that are still in use, but his speciality is fluid dynamics and radiation. And we did manage to broach the subject of geoengineering with Jeff, and he was very forthcoming. So keep your ears peeled today. Yeah, yeah, gosh, he was dynamic. So uh, hard to get it. I know he was just bursting to say so much more, um, but he was trying to keep it all moderated for for us, for our level. Mm. (laughs) And... and the next one was about the dock land and the burning of coal. And I don't want to identify where this person was talking or referring mm. to, but yeah, reading the survey that DOC has put out to its certain people that are on dock land with with their batches and the like was quite leading. Even if you didn't burn coal, you were encouraged to respond to the survey. And so the bias would have been significant, uh, in my in my view. Um, yeah. So yeah, have, have you got an opinion on that, Jasper? Ah, this is Doc that have signed up to net zero emissions, mm. and mm. suddenly burning coal on uh, you know conservation land is going to be a crime. The way th- you know the way these surveys are now being asked, being uh, put out, and it's quite surprising. You know, this coming on the back of I, the contrast doesn't miss me. When we spoke to Patrick last week from West Coast Minerals about coal and its uses, we've spoken in the past to other experts on how society has advanced one coal plant at a time. And here is Doc putting out a questionnaire 
of whether New Zealanders are guilty of the sin of burning coal on Dockland. <laughs> I, I can't prove this, but it was probably a time when helicopters took coal into backcountry huts for, for trampers <laughs> in dock huts. I can't prove that. Look, whatever. I mean, yeah, it's it's virtue signaling at the highest level. And you know, I want to see the world um, cleaner and better and uh, and smarter and more efficient. But, you know, this net zero stuff is going to tear us to bits. And and on that vein, and before I go on, just uh, I noted um, there was a new report out on uh, on the electricity sector uh, to try and meet net zero 2050. And it was reported in one of the South papers. It talks about how um, the proposed hydro, hydrogen plant for Southland was found to be uneconomic under a range of analysis uh, and economic investigation commissioned by the Parliamentary Commissioner for the Environment. And the only real options that stood the test of time to meet this net zero were closing of the TY smelter, which uh, you know, people at North might think is smart, but you know, those of us that are trying to keep a Southland economy together think that's terrible. Uh, and the second one was building the pumped hydro system in near near Roxburgh. So that's how it's called the Lake Oslo project, pumped hydro. And of course, that is multi-billions. But all the rest of it, um, they said they can't, it just doesn't look like any of the stuff's going to pay. I'm, I'm, I'm short-forming the answers, but none of the stuff's economic, no matter how you're going, in terms of hydrogen and the like, just doesn't stack up. And that's what happens when you get ahead of the marketplace, the real marketplace. And sorry, that was a big deflection from the uh, no, no, no. from the mailbag. We've got a bit more, but um, yeah, I just thought that was vitally interesting and uh, interesting uh, in but, terms of our report and um, must read more about it. Isn't it amazing? The economics don't even seem to matter these days. It's almost an afterthought. If they meet the ESG criteria, your environmental, social governance factors, you're ticking them off. It seems no expense is too much. Not on next year, uh, two hundred large New Zealand companies will have to report on their climate credentials, and God knows what sort of greenwashing is going to go on there. Could be a paradise for this show. Could be paradise. <laughs> I, I know, I know. Can't wait. And there's going to be a whole lot of DEI endeavors that will need to be quantify your diversity, equity. And inclusion, and I believe there's one more DEI piece of belonging, belonging. belonging. And, and at the at the the peak body of all this is the corporate equality index, uh, as well. And that is, uh, oh God, if yeah, how people are going to. It, it almost reminds me of how the LGBTQIA and whatever plus endeavors have gone. There were two alphabets. One more got added, another got added, and now there's just a plus at the end of it to signify whatever else they would like to include under the rainbow banner. It's the same way, began with diversity, diversity and equity, diversity, equity and inclusion, uh, diversity, equity, inclusion and belonging. Yep, it's uh, letters of the alphabet uh, mean something to a lot of people that are looking for jobs out of legislation and privilege. And of course, on the corporate equality index, uh, as I understand it, it is going to be used to um, to either create your line of credit or inhibit your line of credit mm. uh, if you're a big borrower. And uh, so what does that do? It makes you comply whether you want to or not because you're under pressure to get your funding. 
so that's the coercion that's going to be going on at the back of this. And it won't end well for a lot of firms, and it certainly won't end well for farmers that don't don't measure up. And that's why we're trying to warn farmers in New Zealand, stop falling into all these traps, because they are a trap that you won't be able to extricate yourself from. Um, so stop letting these people control your every move as a farmer or a businessman. But that's what's happening. And, and, and the other worse is farmer-owned companies big companies, big processes are party to all this nonsense and putting pressure back inside the farm gate that is unfair. Absolutely. You know, we've spoken in the past, Ton and I, about Budweiser, what's happened there, their marketing campaign with Dylan Maloney and how it led to an eroding of uh, their uh, market value. But it doesn't seem to have stopped them. They've gone even harder. Disney has done the same thing. We are seeing companies in New Zealand, bigger ones at this point, mind you, not the smaller ones, but bigger ones, your telecoms, your power companies and all follow suit here. This is all under the DEI matrix and they, they know exactly what they are doing. You know, it's there's, there comes a point, as I've often said, to stop looking for a reason and a reason. Sometimes you just have to come to the conclusion that whatever the intended outcome is unfolding, no matter how ridiculous it might seem, was exactly what was intended because no other option makes sense. So many people are feeding at this trough. So many people. Um, and of course, it's it's grown lots of legs in the last sort of five, 10 years where um, all manner of people have found a way to solicit grants uh, so even encourage legislation all to advance this cause that that adds nothing but cost to the mums and dads of this country. Nothing yep. but cost. Nothing good comes out of it for the mums and dads. Um, by the way, yeah, so we've deflected from a lot of stuff, but you've got one more that you want to talk about from Mark, haven't you, um, about the road signage? Yes, I do. So last week, Don and I had spoken, or I should say I had spoken, and poor Don was just watching me rant on there, if I'm completely honest, yeah. about the fact that uh, NZTA, or Wakakutahi, as they have renamed themselves, have decided that a bit of physical safety, because of the added cognitive load for drivers now having to see uh, decipher theory or science first and English ones later. That, so that bit of added uh, mental uh, strain and any physical danger that that might uh, cause is worth is worth uh, undergoing because uh, cultural safety of a language is under threat. And that made no no sense to me. So we have uh, Mike who's written into us after listening to that segment. And uh, he says, hi, guys, I'm again listening to both of you talk about the signage of our roads. It seems to be pushed into all our government departments. In 2019, I had to take my wife to an appointment at Wanganui Hospital. She had cancer and unbeknownst to us, had gone to her brain, damaged her optical nerve and several others. I hope she's better now, Mark. But he goes on to say, it had been a situation where the hospital had made a very urgent appointment and we had to make our way immediately to be seen to, by the specialist at the department. I put my wife in the car, went to the hospital, could not find out where the department was. All the signage 
was in Maori in 2019, with no English to help us. We finally got there late, and I had a bit of a word to the receptionist about it and was glared at by a Maori couple there because of what I had said. But this was my wife in terrible pain and distress, and they wanted me to be politically correct. Several more words were exchanged, and they just had to accept I wasn't going to apologize, and that was that. I'm now constantly aware of these signs that is probably 95% of the people can't read them, yet we are expected to deal with them. Why is my question when, like I say, 95% of people can't understand it? Still a bit angry about it. Mike from Foxton. Yeah, so why? Why? It's a very good question. Um, You know, all this political correctness thing started, we used to talk about it 20 years ago, never believed that it would get the legs it has. Um, But we've been, we've been asleep at the wheel letting this happen. And there is obviously a lot of a lot of impetus gained by um, you know, the new belief that that um, perhaps the treaty understanding for some people is different. Uh, we seem to want to renegotiate it uh, uh, or reinterpret it 183 years on in a way that suits some people. Um, you know, I'll get shot down for this, but um, it. It's not helping us. It's not helping us at all. And so when you've got people like Julian Batchelor going around the country doing a stop go governance, co-governance tour, you sort of it all sort of meshes in for me. There's something screwy here. It's it's divisive stuff, no matter which way you look at it. And and look, I'm uh, like uh, Mike. I I have to go online a lot and read um my way into government department websites and it just i just would rather not do it it's so confusing now is it me that i'm just not willing to do it have i got my mind shut down on it all am i down on this sort of stuff i'd like to think that i'm logical and rational but i think it's just a massive overreach and a massive abuse of 95 percent of the country couldn't agree more, John. I really don't have a lot, a lot to add there. Though, mm. uh, actually, I do have one thing to add there. Uh, Julian Bachelor is—is uh, is he tonight in Invercargill? I believe he's there for two nights. Yes, he's. And in, uh, uh, the Invercargill yeah. Mayor Nobby Clark, I believe, will be there at this meeting. Yeah, I gather that too. And uh, so, you know, the the worst thing about all this is that um, there's been some regions in New Zealand where. Julian has been shut out. I mean, what is it about free speech that people don't like in New Zealand? What is it about co-governance they do like? Uh, why don't they want to hear the story? And so when the South Otago mayor, uh, the Clutha district mayor, uh, Brian Cadogan, has sort of nastily responded to Julian turning up in Belclutha, um, you sort of wonder what what this is all about. But in my, my view, local government is now so partisan in this country. It is you're either left or you're right. And uh, Nobby Clark is obviously centre-right and Brian Cadogan is left, not even centre. And, uh, you know, I know them both. Uh, don't disrespect both either of them. But um, clearly they have private thoughts and they're exerting those private, uh, exclaiming those private thoughts in public. And, um, well, sorry, they're not private, are they? They're making them public, they're private thinking. So... I think that's fine, except that it shouldn't be partisan. Local government, I know it is in Auckland. You know, they they have the left and the right factions, but 
and regional New Zealand. Gosh, we don't need this stuff. This guy, Julian, what's so divisive about him? I've listened to him online and watched him. I don't find anything he's saying so obnoxious that I want to turn him off. I want to hear what he's saying. And in that vein, I was heartened this uh, last week to get, it appears that it's been funded by um, the New Zealand uh, Policy, Centre for Policy Research, uh, you know, Ex-Muriel Muriel Newman's page, but the Treaty of Waitangi, an explanation, Titaritio Waitangi, um, by the Honourable Sir Aparama Nata. Now, I'm guilty of never having read the three articles that everyone talks about in the treaty. Here I am in my mid-60s, never read them. I've now read them, so I'm very thankful for um, Muriel Newman's organisation to send this out and to all the households of New Zealand, I gather. That mm-hmm. doesn't come cheap. And I just implore New Zealanders to have a wee read and think about the grievance industry. Um, and I, you know, it makes me think someone needs to do a count up as to how much funding is going into all manner of directions uh, for, for one part of our community. So, I don't know. I don't think anyone's ever done the sums, but yeah, you know, when you're constantly here, and we'll talk about this a bit later, how the health system's failing certain ethnic groups. I consider I'm part of an ethnic group, and it might fail me as well. Wow. <laughs> no, anyway. no, you're pale steel white male. Yeah, exactly. No, 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 no. You are. You, you don't have a right anymore. But uh, thinking of what you just said, I'll just have one comment to add. There was it, Voltaire, who said that I disapprove of what you say but will defend to death your right to say it. That's all there was to it. You know, democracy and free speech. Last year, uh, VFF had done these signs, big billboards, which came down pretty soon once the media cottoned on. But one of the ones that I remember was a person with a lock around their lips. And, you know, without free speech, you are not free. This is, for me, this is really... Eerie. This is probably the worst thing if you're not allowed to speak in New Zealand. And we call ourselves a, a democracy. We have our center government, local government, everyone, you know, waxing wow. lyrical about how we are a thriving democracy. Well, let the man have a say. For all I know, we have criminals. We have people with the very, very uh, serious charges around them who are not even going to jail these days. Everything is community service and whatnot. All the guy wants to So you consider him deluded? That is your right. Does he have a right to speak? He should. He should. Uh, it, it's interesting. Um, we've been discussing um, offline a lot about uh, uh, burglaries and, and rural, um, yeah, especially rural bur- burglaries in the South. And the common thread is uh, the perpetrators seem to, they get caught, but they don't get, they don't pay reparation and they seem to get off lightly. And the common thread also is that the judgments made against them when they do get to court are so weak, um, you you wonder why you bother uh, being concerned because these people are going to be back on the street doing the same thing. And the other thing that... um, came clear to me as a rural as, as for those of us living in rural areas 
drones and Google Maps are a criminal's paradise. They can they can case a place uh, in the broader daylight. They know how to get in. I mean, it's just it's just horrible. So, yeah, we've we've gone from um, free speech to to um, some other freedoms that are being taken from us. You know, this is their security on our own properties. Um, it used to be that you could leave your house unlocked down in Southland here, and you could go on a North Island holiday, go overseas, and no one would break in. Now and and it's got worse in the last five years, much much worse. Um, why is that? Because, well, because we've had um, and I I know I my part part is my party politics are obvious. Um, we've took, taken the foot off the brake of um, of respect for the property of others. We've we've said the property of others is fair game because you're not going to get penalised and. You know, if there's no consequence, you can get away with this stuff. I mean, my road in this last week has had rubbish dumped on it, including whole car bodies. What? That just regular. We're getting people just in our neighbourhood getting burnt out car bodies dumped. I mean, it's not just, li- living in such a rough part of the city, don't well. I we're living. We're living right on the city boundary. It's incredible yeah. the the disrespect for our property. Incredible. Never once would have happened, but it is nowadays. So we've covered a lot of ground here. I mean, we started um, giving feedback to listeners. We've gone from free uh, from co-governance to to rural security. But yeah, things just aren't right, are they? Around our basic freedoms and need to be respected by fellow human beings. Exactly. There's m- massive disrespect, and I just. You know, it's not often I um, get angry with people, but I could get angry with the way uh, if I met some of these perpetrators, I probably could get quite angry. <laughs> right. I think to on a lighter note, Yeah. on a lighter note, I think I, I can't miss uh, a greenwash product of the week. And what caught my attention was this Facebook uh, post from the feds couple of days ago about this must be the new electric ute alternative the government expects farmers to be buying only two-wheel drive with reduced ground clearance thousand kg towing capacity and an eighty thousand dollar price tag there's a stuff headline to accompany this driving into the future with new zealand's first all electric ute and the best comment i saw there was so far is at least I'll be stuck in the front of my farm rather than the back. <laughs> <laughs> oh, funny. Yeah. And cr- reduced ground clearance, two wheel drive, thousand K town capacity. It's really not going to be a farm mute, is it? No, but An that's 80, what they say. 80 K price tag. Uh, yeah. Look, we've got a ways to go on this stuff. I mean, I think uh, electric vehicles, electric uh, electricity is fantastic. Yeah, it's a bit like right tree, right place. To me, it's about right vehicle, right place, and right use. Mm. Um, it may be useful for around town, but put a trailer behind it. Um, put yeah. it where I live and the sort of roads I drive. <laughs> nah. So, nah. But in any case, so this uh, article from Stuff is electric commercial van champion. LDV is the first brand to release an all-new electric ute, shiny bright blue. And we took it for a weekend spin last year. 
40,000 youths were sold in New Zealand, and despite the growing popularity of electric vehicles, not one of them was battery-powered. Until now, I wonder why, what those 40,000 buyers were thinking. <laughs> it's real, this new ute, it's rear-wheel drive, and its ground clear, uh, clearance has been reduced by the EV powertrain and battery. So it's not intended for off-roading. There's a, there's a funny saying. It's a ute, uh, right. It's a ute. Yeah, it's not not for off 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 road use. As a there's a funny saying that um, well, the older generation have it's that it couldn't pull the skin off a rice pudding, meaning it's got no power, it's got no, no real use on a farm. It it wouldn't cut the mustard effectively. Um, that's a real cynical view, but that's a saying that's uh, common amongst rural um, rural people. Interestingly, I do think it does have a will have a use around cities for tradies and and deliveries yeah. and things like that. But you know, to put has, a tra- trailer behind it, its its capacity will just have it'll just be horrible. The T sixty has a one thousand kg maximum brake towing weight, which will impact the vehicle's range. They don't say mm. by how much it mm. will impact. And uh, basic user interface is basic and utilitarian. To minimize cost, no seat formers, no mirror attached to the back of the sun visor. Digital display was not intuitive. and But they say it's a robust all-weather surface drainage points, make it easier to hose off. It's an ideal, here comes the kick, <laughs> it's an ideal low-carbon utility vehicle for provincial use. What is well, <laughs> we'll see what, whether the sales um, show that in time, won't we? We'll, I, that'll be the proof. I can't see either you don't or money or my husband shelling out eighty thousand seventy nine nine ninety nine for the privilege of owning one of these. What else could you buy for eighty thousand? I know I could probably buy a few racehorses. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that there, that's a low carbon option. Yeah, it is. It is. It's interesting. A uh, bit of levity. Uh, Locking your um, cars uh, keys in the car don't actually help either, Jasper. That's what I've done this week. I mean, it's virtually impossible to do, but I managed to do it. So, how to put a stressor on uh, on the on Don? It happened, and um, yeah, people are going to dine on that for a long time. So I'm telling everyone so you can all have a laugh. <laughs> but, but I put the stress on. Uh, interesting. Just last thing I wanted to talk about too in this segment was. We've got Dr. Tom Sheehan going around the country and uh, talking about the physics of methane and other things. Uh, you know, he, he he's, gives a quite a wide-ranging talk, but that's the key focus. And it's been mysterious to me how mainstream media has not given one print inch to his um, his tour so far. He's got five, uh, three more meetings left today uh, in Invercargill, tonight, that is, sorry, and tomorrow in Gore. Um, and then Balclutha, he's got those three meetings, but not one column inch has been given to his tour so far. And then when I read the Farmers Weekly and the Rural News, there is contrasting opinions um, about whether the HWE and Haywaka Ekanoa process is alive or dead. And the Farmers Weekly, it says it's very much alive and the acting president of Fed Farmers is right back in the tent, as is beef and lamb and dairy and Zed. And then the other one, in the rural news, um, HWEN is dead. Um, and so you add up all that and you sort of see the machinations that are going on. The owners of um, organisations like uh, the Dairy and Zeds, the, the Beef and Lambs and the Fed Farmers aren't being listened to. I mean, 
there was a there was a um, local delegate who was the chairman of Beef and Lamb got voted out recently because he wasn't listening to his owners, but they've just gone on like nothing's happened. And Andrew Hoggard has left the presidency of Feds and put it put his uh, supposed successor in, although he's not fully uh, elected yet. And he's he's changed nothing. He's gone back backward, uh, right in the tent with the minister. Uh, what are they doing, these people? Do they want to be representing farmers or do they want the farmers' wrath? And, of course, it's now left to groundswell to pick up the bits. Uh, it's it's all a bit weird, but going back to Dr. Tom Sheehan, not having a, having a new academic in this country t- telling a very important story that all New Zealanders should be party to, and he can't get a column inch. What the heck is that about? I believe, Don, you told me he got some column inches, but five words had to be changed in the advert somewhere in the country? Uh, That was just an advertisement for, um, yeah, for for one of his meetings. Uh, They couldn't get it advertised because there was some wording that just wasn't quite fitting the narrative. And on that, I recall late last year, I you and I talked on a webinar that uh, we were talking about the representative concentration pathway story, how it had been um, sort of reduced uh, under the rules, or yeah, under the IPCC expectation. And this local paper wouldn't print what you and I talked about because it may offend an advertiser or the editor or the owner of the paper, the advertisers or the owner. We've got serious problems in this country getting information out. And so at least the Rural News and Farmers Weekly, while they have contrasting views, at least they are a print version that has some content that's useful. But they, they've they certainly had their share of the public interest journalism fund. I... Uh, certainly, at least, uh, at least one of those two has. At least yeah. one of those two. At least one of those two has had. And, mm. you know... Speaking about methane, because that's what Tom Sheehan's talk is going to be mm. about, how it is an inconsequential gas. Farmers, we are having a split gas levy and we are having, I mean, the roots of this were done a couple of years ago when our leaders, unbeknownst to most of us, signed the Global Methane Pledge. And even when I hear the opposition, they keep saying, we are not going to be taxing our farmers, we are going to look at new technologies. Hey, there's more than one way to skin a cat. It's saying the same thing. Why is no one coming down to the physics? A methane molecule, regardless of its origins, be it biogenic or something else, is CH4. Mm. That is methane. And regardless of its origins, it has to behave the same way. But our politicians have converted the science into political science. Only they know how. And uh, we've got a whole lot of academics going along. Oh, and so this is so deeply entrenched in all our statutes, uh, you know, that are relative to this, this subject and net zero, that no bureaucrat wants to back out, no uh, person that's making money out of it wants to back out and say we got it wrong. Um, it's not like we'll say sorry and we'll ease out of this slowly. We've got this global pledge, as you say, and then I learned the other day. Yeah, and I'm just a nutty conspiracist. Um, uh, that the WEF has New Zealand uh, trade negotiators working amongst it, 
So the WFs are relevant, EEFs are relevant to New Zealand. There's nothing to see here. But we've got trade negotiators working in that same mix. What the hell are they doing in there? And I heard one of these trade negotiators, I can't pronounce his name. I will have to look it up. Don, uh, speak in person and in Ricargill about in a forum by Rod Carr, the Climate Commissioner, called Everything to Gain. Uh, what's his name, Don? We are. Oh, it was Vangelis Vitalis, and I really respect him, but I yes, didn't Vangelis. think he'd be gullible enough to take positions in the WF because we're told, we're told by politicians, nothing to see here, nothing to see in the WEF, nothing to see in the unelected uh, positioning that we take in the in the United Nations, and yet these people are working all amongst it um, and have been for some time. So, you know, I'm, I don't want to cast a you know, aspersions against their character. They have been they have been instructed to do this by their masters. So it's not their fault. But tell yes, New Zealanders but- what we're doing, and we've never told them. Oh, thank you for giving me the name. So Vangelis Vitalis, he was in Invercargill on the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and Trade, the MFAT mm. website. If I look at his profile, it says he's worked outside the ministry, mostly as an economist to the OECD. He's a past member of the World Economic Forum's Future Global Council on Trade and is currently a member of the World Economic Forum Trade and Investment Action Group. And he's also on the steering committee for the World Economic Forum Climate Trade Zero Initiative. And so he's currently the New Zealand envoy for the Small Advanced Economies Initiative. So this is these are our trade negotiators. As John said, no disrespect here, but how many masters can you have? This big, big problem here. I I was not aware that we were letting ourselves go into the into the wiring diagram of the WEF at this level. Um, I accept begrudgingly that the UN um, had a, had us around the table doing stuff. But the connection into the WEF was never there to me from from my um, understanding. And so it's a big surprise, Jaspreet. And I'm, you know, you, you see how I think we're trying to tell our listeners how how deep this is, how deeply entrenched this leftist ideology is, because it is leftist ideology. And it's um it's gonna eat us up. It's going to um it's going to dominate our lives. We talked about compliance around climate a moment or two ago for reporting next year. That's only one facet of it all. It's it's this is going to be used as James Shaw, Minister Shaw keeps talking about, you know, we've we've got brand New Zealand to protect. So every time they put up another sort of ruling or a, some sort of ambition, we have to meet it all the time. Uh, and so or else brand New Zealand gets tarnished. So we've got reputation risk. I mean, it's it's all about straight jacket fits. And that's where we're heading. The straight jacket will fit no matter what we do. They're going to make it fit around all of us. And It's not a nice place. No, nah, not by a long shot. And speaking of the fact that Ali Tregun, trade negotiator, is ex-World Economic Forum, uh, our biggest city, Auckland, is a part of a network called the C40 Cities. It's a global network that the World Economic Forum states has convened stakeholders, mayors of nearly 100 countries, leading cities, 
that are united in actions to combat the climate crisis. So Auckland, you are home to a third of the country's population. And going by the forecasts I've seen today in council documents and others, you are slated to have another 1 million people living there by 2050. So, you know, you, you might just double. You are a part of the C40 cities. And Don and I will go into detail in this in another separate uh, segment on another show. But there is this report called The Future of Urban Consumption. And Auckland is urban, the vast majority of it, uh, for the C40 cities. And it was very interesting because, you know, we can get caught up in that whole uh, mindset of thinking this is only affecting rural New Zealand or these climate denying farmers or whatnot. As a C40 city, this report about urban consumption for C40 cities, uh, it has separate segments about how you will need to, urban New Zealand, you will need to adjust your eating habits, your driving habits, even your clothing and textiles and your shopping habits to fit. And uh, they actually have a table. And on this particular report, they call it clothing and textile consumption interventions modeled to reduce emissions across C40 cities, of which you are one Auckland. So the progressive target for 2030 is Eight new clothing items per person per year. That's a progressive target, you know, easy. But if they get really ambitious, they also have an ambitious target that you might just help them fulfill in 2030, which is just three new clothing items per year. So if you think the methane madness, the net zero madness is not coming to you, you have another thing coming. They've got a plan here. And as Don was telling me, if his family has to live by, you know, the ambitious target, uh, sorry, the progressive of eight new clothes per year, there's going to be some therapy needed. Therapy, all right. There'll be big therapy. <laughs> Interestingly, um, about 1960 or 65, I could have easily fitted all of those uh, as a youngster. I don't recall any new clothes. Um, yeah, until I became an adult, I don't recall getting more than one pair of shoes a year, which was fine because... You only need one pair of shoes to go to school. Mm. So we are we are a very consumptive or consuming society, um, but we don't need edicts from on high either to tell us how to live. My mum would say something exactly similar, and she was telling me, you know, agrarian society in Punjab, they would get clothes during after each harvest mm. when the money would mm. come in. So clothes twice a year, once in March after the wheat, and then the paddy one later in the year. And I have no problem. I Probably, I don't think I buy more than a dozen items a year. I can really honestly say no more than one a month. I'm, as my husband says, a cheap date. But this is, these dictates is what I have a problem with. So this report, I, if someone wants to Google it on your own, it's called The Future of Urban Consumption in a 1.5 degree Celsius World C40 Cities Headlines Report. And on that note, I think <laughs> Don and I will take a short break. And uh, we've a few days ago, one evening, we sat with uh, Professor Jeff Duffy, who we had just spoken about from Auckland University, a chemical uh, engineer. And we'll be speaking to him about his speciality, which is radiation 
and focus also on the forgotten role of water vapor in heating or cooling or whatever else you think is going to doom humanity very soon. You know, we began with Greta. We survived so far, but we might not survive too long. So we'll be back in a minute. Thank you for joining us this morning. Please text us on 2057 or email us at inbox at the rate reality check touch right here. Jaspreet Bopperai and Don Nicholson with Greenwashed on RCR Reality Check Radio. Hello and welcome back to Greenwashed with me, Jaspreet, and my co-host, Don Nicholson. We are very grateful to have with us today Professor Jeff Duffy from the Department of Engineering from the University of Auckland. Jeff has been the brains behind many novel processes and products. And for the past four decades, he's taught fluid mechanics, heat transfer, and specialized in radiation. He has been the first person in Oceania to earn a Doctor of Engineering degree for his pioneering work after his PhD and was made fellow of the Royal Society well over three decades ago. And at that point, he was the first chemical engineer in New Zealand to do so. With his background, Jeff's got a great grasp of greenhouse gases and more specifically, the dominance of water vapor. Thank you so much for giving us your time today, Jeff. The floor is yours. Welcome to Greenwater. Fine. Uh, my pleasure to be with you today. Um, this topic of weather and climate change is, is very interesting today and high on most people's lists. So let's just start way out of it and, and talk about We talk about weather. And today, all we hear on television and radio in particular is that it's temperature change. Things are getting hotter or colder or on that. Well, that's not weather. That's only part of weather. Weather, of course, incorporates rainfall. It incorporates snowfall or number of sunshine hours. It incorporates storms and wind and so on. So if we go to a particular place and we are looking at the conditions, we look at the climate at, say, if you're going to Sydney in March, you find what the moisture is like, how much rainfall, what the temp- average temperature is like, and so on. So each city or town and area has a, a climate specification. Now, the thing about this is that the climate is a, an average of 20 to 50 years or more of the, these meteorological factors. And, of course, it's an average. Now, Averages are good, but they can also give you a misunderstanding because, for example, let's say we take Auckland, where I live, uh, if the satellite came over 100 times, let's make it in a week, and let's take it one year or one week, it comes over 70 times at night out of the 100, next week it comes over 70 times during the day out of 100. Well, now you've got a skewed average. So we have we don't know how many times it comes over and what is average, but what does an average mean? So we've got to be very careful, very, very careful that we don't put all our eggs in one basket about the average temperature's gone up and so on. Well, people say, well, average temperature went up one degree in a hundred years. That sounds good. But a hundred years ago, they didn't have many weather stations and there was none on the oceans. Now, the oceans are 70%, two-thirds of the world is ocean, and they didn't have a weather station 100 years ago or 100-plus years ago. So they only had them on land, and then most of the land, they didn't have them. So we're down to probably 2% of the world had weather stations, and therefore, and then 100 years ago, they didn't have any sophisticated 
measuring devices, so they measured temperature with thermometers. Now, a lot of those thermometers weren't graduated uh, or cross-calibrated, and they weren't necessarily mercury. They were made out of other like alcohol th thermometers and so on. And, of course, people measured them uh, every day at a certain time in their location, and it of course, you've got the effects of mountains and desert nearby or were they by the sea and so on. So we've got a lot of factors that the average, we say, if you're honest, what does the average mean? Well, we've got a problem. We've got a real problem there. So we then say, if we say that um, the climate has changed, what do we mean by that? Climate changes all the time because it's an average of weather. So the weather's changing overnight during the week, next week, and monthly, seasonally, annually. And then, of course, people find this, like when we first came here to Auckland, we had six months of rain. Every weekend, we had six months. Did Every weekend, we rained. This was back in the 60s, uh, late 60s. And so we began to think that was normal, but it wasn't. It's never happened since, where every week has been rainy weekends. So, again, Things shift and change because there are a few things that we need to talk about or should talk about in our thinking. The Earth is rotating. It's rotating all the time. It's it's revolving around the sun. The sun revolves. Uh, our relationship to the sun is different all the time. The moon goes around the Earth, and we have a lunar cycle of about 28-something days. And so we've got effects of forces gravity, intergravitational forces between the moon and the earth. We've got lots of lots of problems and lots of differences that cause changes. And we've seen recently in the last, even today, the high pressure system to the east of, uh, of uh, Christchurch is blocking the flow of moist air down and it kept it fortunately to the right hand side of of uh, new zealand and kept it away from auckland but quite often that high is not sitting there it's it's different place it's been there a couple of times this year we've had a high there so often that the most of the water goes with falls between sydney or australia and new zealand and then of course later on it may be another season it goes down and falls over near the chatham islands on the eastern side so again we have variations so we don't panic to say this is weather change. This is a, uh, this weather change is caused by a, some particular factor. So, so it's of all factors. It's interesting, Jeff. Um, I um, yeah, this whole discussion started around uh, thirty years ago, say with global warming. Uh, when people got vitally interested, I mean, you were obviously interested in your facets of of study, and so was the likes of um, John Maunder interested in weather and meteorology. Um, but all of a sudden, this became in the parlance for all New Zealanders and all sort of the Western world started beating themselves up on climate, on global warming, especially. Then it changed to climate change. Now, I've got a wee bit of an experience in this that I can, um, I think you'd vouch for. I Well, I hope you might. I used to call it climate variation when I was in the in the hot seat in Wellington, and man, did the the bureaucrats despise me for that because I believe climate variation is alive and well, and still is, of course. And you've just used the word word variation, um, so climate variation would be a far smarter um, discussion to talk about, surely, as opposed to just having the concept of what I call legislated climate change which is what everyone talks about. And of course, 
Um, we have lots of disputes about whether, uh, rec- well, sorry, the records of of temperature, right? Not not necessarily rainfall, although there has been some disputes about that in Niwa as well in the Cyclone Gabriel's uh, area, and uh, and of course we've got heat island effects. Uh, we've got a whole lot of things that just don't stack um, to to people like me nowadays. But to most people, they do stack up because they've been sort of browbeaten and brainwashed for so long to not question it. Sorry, that's a big, long statement. But from just your introduction here, it's clear to me that nothing is settled the way the politicians are telling us. And why is it then that people like you and many others that we've had on the show aren't able to influence the political beltway the way it should be. I mean, it's, it seems to be dishonestly founded at the moment. Um, we've got a lot of a lot of a lot of data to show them. Why can't they listen to it? Well, that's a it's a political question. <laughs> it is. Let's just say that if we just go back on your point there, first of all, the globe isn't warming, and they realise that the globe. Some parts are going up, some parts are going down, and so they re- realised the term was globe was not correct. So they went to climate change. Now, climate change, if you're pretty honest, climate is an average. So climate can't cause anything because it's an average. Averages don't cause things. Weather changes, and then you've got to specify what you mean by the weather. Now, if there's a dictatorship coming from, say, um, in this case, International Panel of Climate Change, but it comes from United Nations, if they start coming down on a mantra and they've got access to sophisticated uh, TV and and if you've got people, rich people who own most of these media and channels, you're going to get one side of the story. Now, once you get one side of the story, then you and and it's been around for a while, and they start teaching it to kids in schools, and then the kids believe it and they panic and they worry, and the science teachers don't know any different because they think it's it's all due to radiation and carbon dioxide, when if they're not willing to look at it, and this is where it comes back to, are we willing to examine the facts? Now, the answer, of course, is, is probably not. So I, I would come down on the fact, and I can't, Although, I'll give an example. More recently, I was probably sent to 200 TV and radio channels and broadcast uh, newspapers through Australia and New Zealand. I got a reply from no one. So it doesn't matter about your qualifications. It doesn't matter about it's what the agenda is. Now, let, let me just highlight it, just still keep it pretty, pretty practical here. Radiation, all heat, all energy comes from the sun, but it doesn't come as heat. It comes as radiation. So heat only is produced when it strikes solids, liquids, and a few gases. Now, if you take the few gases in the atmosphere, nitrogen is number one in New Zealand, oxygen is number two, water vapor is number three in New Zealand, argon is number four, and they make up over 99.8%, 99.8% of the atmosphere of those four gases. Now, there's a little bit of carbon dioxide, and the carbon dioxide is only 0.042%, and the rest makes up the total of no more than 0.044 or 0.045%. So 99.95%. 
is, of course, um, ordinary gases. Now, if we take carbon dioxide, if we take water, first of all, water is 100% natural, naturally produced. Carbon dioxide, there's a bit of argument, but let's say it's 95% natural. See, it's been targeted at, at cars and vehicles and power stations. But if you do an analysis, even if you look at the, what's the, the literature and the researchers have done it, it's at least 80%. There are at least three publications that say it's 80. But the, if you go on the worldwide, uh, the worldwide web, <laughs> if you go on the web, you, you'll find that it's, they, they have a little diagram that shows us 95%. So, okay. So if that, what does that mean? It means that of all the greenhouse gases, water and 95% carbon dioxide, there's a smidgen of carbon dioxide left over. There's very, very, very little methane and very little uh, nitrous oxide. So n n there's 99.92, I think it is, or that or what, 99 plus anyway, of it is natural. So now you're, you're trying to take methane. So methane is 0.00019, or if you like, one, it's 0.002%. So it's, it's virtually nothing. Half that is, is approximately is natural. If you take, well, don't do it. Let's not, let's say carbon dioxide. Carbon dioxide is, and if you don't mind the numbers, is 420 parts per million, of which 399 parts of that is natural. So we've got a problem <laughs> that we tag these things. So we are really splitting here. We are saying 0.04% is carbon dioxide, out of which nearly 95% is natural. Natural. So the, what, 5% of 0.04% is the one that's going to, you know, yeah. is an existential threat? Yeah, it's it's really, not only is it wrong, it's dishonest and it's it's sad because there are lots of other things. So let's, let's just, just take, if water vapour can be shown that it's the strongest greenhouse gas by far, it's 24 times higher than concentration than, than carbon dioxide, but it's also over 30 times stronger in radiation effectiveness. Now, that's easy. Go to the web yourself and look. I can give you a reference if you want it, but you can do what they call these curve overlaps. They're already on. They've been on the web for years. And then you can find out how much each contributes. And there are four factors that are pretty important. One is, of course, concentration. One, is, of course, is the overlapping effectiveness. There's competition. But there's one thing that dominates over everything else. And miss this, and you miss everything. And, the, and the, this is the key: water is the only fluid in the atmosphere that condenses. Nitrogen doesn't condense. Oxygen doesn't condense. Methane doesn't condense. None of them do. But water changes phase. That is, it goes from a gas to a liquid, and also goes to a solid, which is snow and ice particles and so on. So now we've got a very unique material. So as soon as it goes into the air, it can stay as a gas or it can form micro droplets. And then the micro droplets get together and they form clouds. And two thirds of the world, 70, 66% of the world is cloud cover. Now you might say, well, that's, what's the meaning of that? Well, I can, let me just tell you what's a practical meaning. Three, uh, 13 million tons of water evaporate every second. 13 million tons. And 13 million tons come down every second. What does that equal to in terms of jumbo jets? 
that's 30,000 jumbo jets of water take off every second. Or if you like, 110 million jumbo jets full of water, I mean, the whole lot is water, is mass, uh, take off every hour. Now, this is massive. Where does that energy come from? It comes from radiation. Oh, yes, but there's some other factors, but let's just keep it keep it clean. So now what we've got is over an hour, over a year, we've got 423 million, million tonnes of water. And, of course, as we said, it's, it's um, 13 million tonnes a second around the world. Now, because water is the greatest greenhouse gas, number one, and number two exists not only as water vapour, but also as droplets, now we've got a unique position. So anybody, anybody, Niwa, anybody who talks about carbon dioxide without mentioning water is, is a public confession they don't understand. Now, you don't have to be rocket science. It's just there. It's, it's all there. And then, of course, if you're honest and you look at the spectrum of the absorption spectrum of, of carbon dioxide water, Water operates over 85% of the total range of solar energy and radiant energy from Earth, whereas carbon dioxide has four bands, two on the incoming and two on the coming from, from Earth. So it doesn't really compete very well. And, of course, it does make a small contribution, but it's pretty small. But until we're honest about it, well, we've got problems. Well, we have got problems, uh, and at the same time, we're tying ourselves up in knots about those problems to the point that we're um, altering our energy mix, we're altering uh, the cost of energy for the mums and dads and businesses in New Zealand, and we seem to be doing it based on the knowledge that we're gaining on the show, uh, all under the false premise of um, of climate change, uh, ir- 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 sorry, yeah, irrefutable or irreparable. No, that's they're not probably not neither of those words are right. But climate change that is um, deleterious, uh, horrible. Un, uh, yeah, we've got to limit it. We've got to limit it, and it's going to cost billions to do it. When in fact, the way I'm listening to many guests like yourself is uh, we're we're chasing a rainbow that doesn't exist. That's very true. Well, look, it, it's very simple too. If you take water vapor, what does it do? The more the Earth heats up for any reason, let's assume someone says it's climate change, it's gone up one degree. Well, what happens? More water evaporates. And if there's more water evaporate, what happens? More clouds. Now, have you ever walked under a cloud or a cloud comes over on a hot, sunny day? You immediately feel cooler. And it's also a bit darker because you haven't got the bright sunlight. So the clouds stop the penetration of infrared radiation and visible radiation through the cloud, and therefore it's immediately cooler because the, you haven't got the radiant energy hitting your body. So, or get under a tree and then step out again and you go up 10 degrees. And by the way, uh, temperature goes up 5, 10, 15 degrees every day. I mean, this morning it was about 9 degrees, 10 degrees in Auckland. It was about 14 degrees outside, 15 degrees. Uh, as, the day. as we were, uh, Professor Duffy, as you spoke about the carbon dioxide concentration, 419, 420 parts per million, that also is an average, isn't it? Yes. Daytime, nighttime, around plants, you know, around, say, yeah. a paddy or wheat or something. Even yeah. that is an average. So how do we come to that figure that this is what we've reached today? This is it, what it was pre-industrialization, and that's why we must panic. Well, 
people say because it's a gas, it's constant concentration. Now, not only is it wrong, it's misunderstanding two important things, vital. Number one, photosynthesis. So anywhere near a leaf or a crop, the calm dioxide is absorbed into the leaf. It breaks up the carbon, and the carbon makes cellulose. It makes oranges or flowers or whatever it is. But it's interesting. I say to people, where does orange juice come from? I say, oh, it comes from the sky. It comes from the carbon dioxide, and the molecule spits out, the leaf spits out oxygen, and it takes the carbon and makes all the molecules, the apple core, the apple skin, the uh, yellow the yellow skin of the orange or the white stuff underneath, it all comes from the air. So carbon dioxide is the fuel, if you like, the fertiliser. Now, there's a bit coming from the land, of course, the rotting leaves and in the dirt and so on. But... That's number one. Number two, and it's often missed out, we've got plankton in the sea. And what does that do? It takes the carbon dioxide and it forms, makes mollusks and shells, little crab shells, little shells of living animals, and also later on they precipitate. So carbon dioxide in the water, in ordinary tap water, like Coke or soda stream, it's acidic, always acidic. Carbon dioxide in the sea is never, ever, ever acidic. It forms mollusks and shells and forms bicarbonates and other things. I won't go into the detail ever. Let's say this. People say the oceans are becoming more acidic. Now, what's that say? That says to the person saying that, I do not understand. You can't have an alkaline thing becoming more acidic. You can only have it becoming less alkaline. So it'll never, ever, ever become acidic. So the ocean, while ever it's got mollusks, shells, and material that takes in the carbon dioxide. Now, of course, this opens up a can of worms because you you drink carbon dioxide bubble, carbon dioxide in a, in a can of Coke. It's acidic because it forms carbonic acid, and so it's acidic. So we've got that problem alone shows, and that's the school kids don't have that. The school kids are not told that. They don't understand that. Now, then, of course, the big issue, of course, is the fact that this has been propagated and without understanding the, the valuable, without carbon dioxide and without the processes that convert carbon dioxide into oxygen, that's where we get oxygen from. And carbon is makes cellulose, it makes leaves and stems and tree trunks, and that all comes from the air. Now, let us say a little bit comes from ground. Yeah. And of course, they've labelled carbon dioxide as a pollutant. You hear that every day. Um, they talk about the carbon dioxide pollution. I mean, Russell Norman from the Green, uh, formerly from the Green Party and now Greenpeace, is adamant. Of, uh, he just keeps peddling that myth um, when you and I and others know it's the um, fertiliser of life, effectively. And uh, I've read, uh, I've said this on the show before, that I used to make a statement that, um, well, if you're not breathing out CO2, effectively you're dead. And no one wants yeah. that, do they? Um, not not before time anyway. And um, and you couldn't even get a laugh. You couldn't get humour out of people because they oh, are so yeah. beaten by the fact that CO2s are pollutant. Well, it's unbelievable. monoxide is. So if, yes. you're, if you turn, you lock up your garage and start your car, mm. you'll get carbon monoxide poisoning. Now, if you have a heat in your house without ventilation, you get carbon di extra carbon dioxide and you go off to sleep. 
and mm. you don't die from carbon dioxide poisoning, but you die from the fact that you've got not enough oxygen. Oh, and you could wear a, wear a mask, uh, wear a mask for months on end, and what do you get? I mean, it's, <laughs> there's a lot of debate about wearing a mask too, um, Jeff. Well, that's, that's, I'll give an example. See, ex, inhale, in the atmosphere now, there's about 420 parts a million. Now, you breathe it in. When you breathe it out, you breathe it out at 40,000 parts per million. Now, if you go into a lecture room, say the university or school, it's 1,000 to 2,000 parts per million. If you go to the pub, it's 2,500 parts per million. And if you're in a submarine, you live on it for six months at five to 6,000 parts per million. You live on it. It's in there all the time. So, And, of course, plants die below 150. So you can see carbon dioxide is the... Is is absolutely vital for life, and, and and so so very important. And it's as I said, it's carbon monoxide, carbon dioxide. Yes, it'll send you off to sleep if you don't have oxygen. That's the that's that's why we have ventilation. That's why we have flues in the lounge room where someone take the gases away. The gases have got to get, be exhausted either by ventilation or by ex- using a flue in your lounge room or something. Hmm. So it is important. That, um, you made a statement earlier that um, greenhouse, ga- uh, sorry, water vapor was the only greenhouse gas that can um, that has three states: solid, liquid, yeah. gas. I mean, most people wouldn't think of that, Jeff. Um, you know, I I hadn't thought about it until you mentioned it. Um, well, it's, it's the only gas condensed. So, if you look at all the gases, let's take the top five: oxygen, nitrogen, argon, carbon dioxide, and and water vapor. What does water vapor do that nothing, no one else does? No, nothing else does. It forms droplets. It forms rain. It forms mists, fogs, and sleet. And then when it freezes up there, it forms snow and ice crystals and hail. So you've got all those things. Now you say, people say, oh, carbon dioxide is causing all the trouble. Well, please answer all those questions about clouds, rain, mists, fog, sleet, ice crystals, snow, and hail, because they're all there. And if you're taking 423 million, million tonnes come down every year, you've got to include that. And, of course, the Earth is rotating. Now, once the Earth's rotating, what have we got? Winds, storms. We've got thermals. That's what the people go up on their uh, hang gliders and so on and and, uh, other devices to fly around. So, But they don't talk about that. They only talk about radiation. So it really is a, a sad day that science teachers... Um, people at the university even are not talking about that and 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 not talking about this phase change see this let me say let me just i've got it here just a little note there are five things that are vital in our atmosphere today number one is radiation all energy comes from the sun okay number two is the natural water cycle so that as the earth heats up more water evaporates more water evaporates, more droplets form, more droplets coalesce to form clouds. Clouds are like umbrellas to start with. Then they co- droplets coalesce and they rain. So you've got this water cycle. It's the natural water cycle. Then you've got, and this is what's left out almost completely. And you know, I don't, today we live by the water here in Auckland and the wind has been horrendous today and the leaves and trees are moving. Where does that come? That's not radiation. That's, dynamic kinetic energy forces now people say oh but that's only a little thing no it's not it's very big and if you've been on sailing ships or what's the sailing races or you, you you've been out in the weather yourself uh, where you the wind has been fierce 
The third thing, of course, is the phase change, the change of state. Now, it's by the way, ice can go straight to gas and not go through the liquid state. So you can, uh, I mentioned to Don just recently, you take your trousers, put them outside in the rain or in the, in the snow, in minus 10 or something, bring them in after a little while and shake them, and it's totally dry. doesn't form any water because ice goes straight to gas. Now, that's not well known, but it's well known. It's one of the, and let me just add to, to, to show you why it's so different. Water, when it freezes, is the only fluid or liquid in the world, in, and nothing ever we know about, that floats in itself when it freezes. Now, if it didn't, it would crush all the whales and sharks and fish underneath it if it sank. It's the only fluid that forms a, floats on itself. Now, the North Pole is totally floating ice. And of course, it was, it's been there for years, of course, and it decreases. <laughs> and every six months, it increases in the next six months. I should say something about that. But how might we say water is unique because it phase changes? And then the, the fifth one is the cycles. We have Earth rotating. So the core, the molten core of the Earth is rotating. The, the magnetic field which we, if we didn't have it, if the earth wasn't solid all the way through, we'd die. Because the wind, the solar wind, they don't talk about that either. Radiation comes from the sun, but that's not all. This solar wind, these are particles, so charged particles traveling at very high speed. There's about two going through your body and my body every second. They're traveling at 800 meters a second. They come from galactic outer space or from the Milky Way or from the sun. And the earth's magnetic field deflects them away. And that's why you've seen the aurora up about 50, 100 kilometers up. You've got these bright interactions between the magnetic fields and of the Earth, produced by the Earth, and these particles. So we would die if we we're bombarded with particles. That's why they study it when they have spaceships and so on, to make sure they don't get bombarded with particles. So just to repeat, radiation is important, but not all radiation. So light doesn't do a thing except it's vital for photosynthesis. So what does light do? Well, light, we've got eyes that we... I'm, I'm thinking I'm on TV now. <laughs> we've got eyes which pick up the um, visible light and we can discern different colours and shapes and the rate things move to and from and so on. That's one thing. But our nerve endings are eyes. They pick up radiation, radiant energy. So the nerves are eyes. They pick up radiant energy. And then the last one, which is not good, is ultraviolet. And the ultraviolet affects our skin, causes little black spots as you get older, and uh, damages our eyes. That's why we wear sunglasses. And further up up in the sky, uh, in the tropos above the troposphere and the stratosphere, it converts oxygen to ozone, which then, of course, is uh, very important to gobble up the bad UV. So most of the bad UV is gobbled up upstairs. Uh, but infrared and visible are vital. It, visible is vital for the photosynthesis and plankton and and uh, on Earth on plants, and of course um, it keeps us warm. So when you feel warm, that's not ultraviolet; that's infrared. So what makes us feel warm is the infrared radiation. It's harmless. Now it uh, won't, won't burn your skin. I mean, you can burn yourself, of course, by putting against it, you know, but it won't form black spots. But ultraviolet will react, cause biological reactions. Okay, That's so nice. a quick summary. A quick summary. Radiation is number one. Number two is the water, natural water cycle. Number three is the 
turbulent mixing of kinetic forces in the air and the ocean, by the way. Got conveyor belts in the ocean. Then we've got phase change, change of state, solid to liquid to, to gas and Vicky Vice and all the way other way around. And we've got cycles. Now, we haven't talked about the sun cycles, the moon cycle, there's a magnetic field cycles. There are a lot more, but they have a big effect on weather and weather change. So as, as I'm listening to you, Jeff, it strikes me again and again, there is a whole lot more that's going on than just the carbon dioxide or the carbon emissions. I They often use this, you know, CO2 as carbon interchangeably. But yeah. it is not that simple as saying that if we sort out the 0.4% of which 95% is natural, we can actually control the Earth's, uh, you know, natural changes, natural processes. But yet, that's what science has boiled it down to. How did we get this stupid? Well, I don't know if that's science. You see, with all due respect to our politicians and our media and even our people on TV, and with with due respect, they only hear what they've been told. And there are a few science people who will get funded and get paid to do things, and they'll do it because they're getting funded. And by the way, just to not correct you, but just to highlight, it's not 0.4%, it's 0.04%. For 0.042% carbon dioxide and 0.04% natural of that 0.042. So it's only, it's 20, if you like, 22 molecules in a million that are causing their trouble. That's their trouble because it's all in the brain because it doesn't work. I'll give you just one dramatic effect. When water evaporates, it's just a side issue, but it just shows how big, and no one talks about it. When water evaporates, it forms little droplets, micro droplets. You can't see them. Now, when they amalgamate so that it rains 13 million tons a a second, you know, the actual agglomeration, the surface area, the little droplets have got a surface area, and when they kiss each other and make up and cuddle and form a bigger droplet, the surface area changes 42 times the surface area of the Earth per hour. 42 times the surface area of the air. Now, you know how big the surface area of the Earth is. It's 42 times that per hour as they, as they make to form rain, a raindrop. So the little droplets in the air, in the sky and clouds, have to get together, have got to change the surface area by 42 times the surface area of the Earth. Now, that's easy to calculate. Anyone can calculate that. There's no you know, brain damage for that. So it's, it's a... Um, a bigger picture thing, and it's not just just, just quantity. See, water vapor is uh, has a certain amount. It's it's one percent, and it's ten thousand parts per million. Now, if we well, perhaps to illustrate to the audience would be this: let's assume the whole atmosphere equals the population of Auckland, one point seven million people. Okay, so the atmosphere is one point seven million molecules. Water vapor is 10,000, carbon dioxide is 700, and methane is three. So what we're saying, if you talk about, and of that three, half of those jokers are natural. And of the 700 uh, 700, uh, molecules or people in New Auckland, of that 650 plus are natural, the rest are the ones that are causing the problem. So uh, that's where we go. We're getting it wrong, you see. And if we could have open debate and discussion, 
but they close you down. That's the problem. And um, and this is all provable, by the way. So, Jeff, in terms of um, lecturing uh, students on this stuff, would you be disappointed if you had um, former students going out and peddling a story that's different to this? They've found uh, that your hypothesis are wrong or hypothesis is wrong. Um, it just... Um, it's, I suppose that's possible. Um, you're making it sound really credible to us tonight or today. and um, uh, But you will have people that will doubt you, I imagine. Well, how can we say many, some years ago, I gave a talk when uh, someone from Niwa was there. And they asked me, would I combat or go head to head with a Niwa representative? I said, sure. But I said, on one condition, he goes first. And number two, I do not talk about him or any of his slides. I'll just talk about, I'll just show you what I've got, the evidence and so on, which, and I'll give you the references so you can go home and do it yourself. It's not like Duffy's data you've got to use. Nothing to do with my data. It's to do with what's on the web, which is everyone's on. And you can't say it's wrong because it's been there for 20, 50 years, particularly the the um, water, water uh, humidity data, you know. Anyway, so at the end of that, People was, were kind of just didn't know which way to go. And one person said, um, why are you opposite to the press and opposite to the... I said, well, I'm a, I explained that a chemist understands more of chemistry, of interaction, of binding of molecules. A biochemist is looking at the biological reactions and interconnectivity and perhaps a big too. The physicist is looking at the physics of radiation and so on, but only the engineers are interested in the massive movements as we've got winds and storms and that. That's to do with motion. That's kinetic energy. And so I said, we've got lots of things that are outside the realm. And I'm not saying the physicists can't handle it. Some brilliant guys around. I'm not saying they can't handle it. But they haven't been exposed to, to, to um, the forces they're just talking about heat. They're just talking about thermal heat. But what I say is you've got, look, for electricity, you've got to have a voltage difference to get electric electricity to, to flow. As soon as you turn the switch on, 240 volts drives the electrons down. Okay, with heat, you've got to have a high temperature to low, but you've got other things as well. You've got pressure driving forces. You've got humidity driving forces. You've got concentration driving forces. You've got other driving forces. And if you don't mention those chemical driving forces, biochemical driving forces, if you don't include that in your total repertoire of understanding what's happening in the world, then it's like the flea on the elephant. You're talking about the flea on the elephant. And basically, you can blindfold yourself and touch an elephant and feel, oh, what terrible, that's cardboard, that's, that's leather or something. Or grab the horn and think of the, 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 or the tail and feel, oh, this is, this is a snake. But if you blindfold, you're only looking at the one thing. And of course, chemical engineers, we're process engineers. I had just to explain, I'll give one quick illustration. A chap from America, he'd been 40 years in climate change. And I actually said to him, that the temperature, the humidity can go up when the temperature goes down. He says, I don't believe you. And he's been working in the field for 40 years. So I sent him up my slides on it and I rang him up and I took him through it. And he said, I never knew that. And the thing is, why? Because chemical engineers and mechanical engineers make dryers, 
So we understand what they call adiabatic, no heat loss, adiabatic humidification, which means as the temperature goes down, the, the humidity can go up. So you get more water out of the, like that's how you do freeze-dry coffee, or that's how you dry wood. You don't, if you dry wood at high temperatures, it'll buckle. If you dry coffee, you'll get rid of it at high temperatures, you'll lose the taste. So you've got to lower the pressure, and of course, lowering the pressure and having the right conditions, you can actually get uh, this just change. So it's it's a fundamental thing. Now, unless we bring processes, and as we said, processes have got two factors, driving forces and resistances. Unless we look at both those and examine them, we will not be able to. And if we just look one or two of them, well, it's the flea on the elephant again. You're studying the flea, so they're looking at the elephant. I think, gentlemen, yeah. at this stage, we'll we'll take a break and we'll come back with a, with our audience in a couple of minutes. Yeah, Thank okay. Thanks for tuning in to RCR, Reality Check Radio. If you like what you're listening to, or even if you don't agree with what you're listening to, then get in touch with us now. You can text us with your message to 2057. That's 2057. Or if you'd rather email us, you can at inbox at realitycheck.radio. We would love to hear from you, so get in touch with us now. Welcome back to Reality Check Radio Greenwashed with Don and Jaspreet and our special guest, Professor Jeff Duffy. Um, we've spent uh, the first part of the show talking about um, elements of sort of water vapor and and it's it's different state or water and it's different states and uh just linking back to that jeff i'd like to know what your thoughts are about the uh volcano and tonga and the amount of water that supposedly went into the atmosphere and then we'll go on to perhaps a wider remit um of you you know your your expertise in chemical engineering and some of your developments that you've you've had over time. But first of all, let's talk about the volcano in Tonga 18 months, two years ago. Okay, well, if you do a, a quick study or review of volcanoes, you'll find that, number one, most volca- active volcanoes are under the ocean. So 80% are under the ocean. Why? Because we've got these um, cleavage planes and we've got carbon dioxide bubbling out of and methane bubbling out. And by the way, little animals live off of stuff. They sit that when they take pictures around there, they gobble up this, they, they, they live off carbon dioxide. It's like McDonald's to them. But in the deep part of the ocean, they, it's liquid, liquid carbon dioxide bubbling out all the time or liquid methane bubbling out. Okay. Okay. So it dispersed into the ocean. Now, when you get a movement of the outer crust, and you get a push up of it, you get, of course, of, of surface volcano. It may not erupt. It may just bubble up and more, some are around the world now that haven't fired stuff up into the air, but they bubble up and they drain down and they get bigger and bigger with time. And some remain, you can see the molten stuff going down as well. Now, when you come to that volcano just a couple of years ago, it was the highest, uh, um, it's a the highest has it got a scale I, i've forgotten the actual it's a special name for it but it measures the height at which it travels the solids which are little particles the hot gas and the water and vapor and the carbon dioxide it goes up 70 to eighty thousand meters and the highest this is one of the highest one that's been on for a long time most of them only go up 
20, 30,000 meters. And uh, uh, of course, th these, this one went up very high. But in fact, it was one of the highest for some time. Now, how can we say when something goes up, it takes stuff with it. So other alongside the jet flume of particles and hot gas and water, vapor, that's not liquid there, sucked into the sides of it and come up with it. So you set up a cyclical or just mixing pattern. Now, as it goes up, the molecules in the air are further apart. So it's colder. It's a, in fact, it's six and a half degrees drop for every kilometer you go up. But when you fly an airplane, you know, we're traveling at 10,000 meters. The outside temperature is minus 50 or minus 55. So you get up 10,000 meters, which and this, these volcanoes often go above that. And this one went well above that. We've got, of course, cold air. But this jet coming from the volcano is still hot. So it's still vapor. And so you ended up with water droplets forming much, much higher than normal, plus a lot of dust. Now, up there, and you can see it from just even today, you can see the clouds moving, if you look every day, moving quickly. And they're traveling at 100, 200 kilometers an hour across the sky. They're not just stratified clouds. Now, above that, you get you seem to have more stationary clouds, but they're sheer. And it's caused by the rotation of the Earth. And it's caused by the fact that molecules near a surface travel with the surface. So if you have a car and you've got a molecule on your roof, the molecules right near the roof of your car are stick to the car. Now, they don't stick. There's no glue, but they are more likely to stay near there. The ones further away get affected and we have a flow stream over the top of it. So when there's near a surface or near a, a jet, those ones are sucked in and then they cool down. And so they had a lot of water condensing and forming ice particles as well as the dirt and dust, which then ag aggregates, cools, agglomerates and starts to settle and fall. And we get all sorts of clouds and other things occurring. Now, the actual quantity of water, when you sit down and work it out, is not very high. So uh, someone sent me something a few months ago or maybe a year ago saying there was 53,000 swimming pools of water. And I thought, no, that's nothing <laughs> because it's 13 million tonnes a second around the world. So a few swimming pools, uh, even 10,000, 20, 50,000, 100,000 swimming pools of water is not very large. So, yes, it affects it, but it's in terms of the total amount of water vapor in the air it's not that great now it's certainly we've had mount pinatabo when it had the dust in the air for years we did have temperature changes on the earth in days gone by in fact it's about every 220 230 years we get a big volcano and we're due to have one because we're coming into this next cycle and we probably have to new ones in between the 2030 to 2040 we'll have another big one uh, which will what bigger, bigger than this one you will see. And so it's traceable because it's been happened the last five, if you take the last 230 years, 220, 230 years, and bounce back over time, you'll find there was a big volcano. So once we get to the maximum temperature and it starts to get cool, and it will be getting cooler shortly and uh, worldwide, and uh, it's a cyclical and it's predictable because it's happened before. It's not predictable because you can mathematical model it. It's predictable for the last five, six of them, the six of them before us, all reached a peak and all dropped off, formed a trough, reached a peak again and dropped off. It's a cyclical movement. And that we haven't talked anything about cycles yet, but 
is the solar cycles, is the sunspot cycles every 11 years. You get sunspot variations down to zero, and we, we're in the 25th cycle now, and uh, we, we're about to get a low number of cycles. That affects it too. You've got the magnetic force cycles, the moon. We've got our annual, we've got a monthly cycle with the moon. We've got annual cycles because of interacting planets and and uh, the uh, with with uh, the sun and so on. And we've got these longer term, right out to 230,000 years, which is called the Milankovitch cycle, which is the fact that the sun is on an elliptical path. The moon is on an elliptical path. It doesn't, it's not the same distance from the earth. That's why we get tides every day. That's why we get king tides every month because the moon is closer to the earth at that period so is that kind of yeah that's that's a good answer thank you i mean because you do hear people talk about how the volcano the tongan volcano was uh and exacerbated um the weather events we're having in new zealand at the moment you see this in the media and you think how true is that um but you've put it into some sort of context and i'm i'm thankful for that well did i just hear you say jeff that you said it's going to get cooler soon Yes. So well, we are not the 1.52 degrees, whatever happens. That <laughs> well, well. I wouldn't like to predict the, the temperatures, but temperatures have gone up since the Little Ice Age. We know the Little Ice Age where they had shops on the Thames River. They People skated summer and winter into the, across the, to the um, shops. They stayed on the, on the Thames. Now, that was a, a Little Ice Age. Now, as a result, the crops went to, went to custard. The food went down. Now, fortunately, there's less than a billion people there. 1500 1600 but now we've got 8 billion so if we go down the sewer in the next 10 or 15 20 years based on the historical record not based on modeling then we're going to have a crop reductions and so the we're going to have colder less yields and so on so we we could be in the cactus with time and um so that's something to keep in your back of your mind but the um, that's not the issue the issue here is that we have cyclical variations in temperature over periods of time which have history to it. And they're all obtained data from tree rings, data from ice core samples, and so on. And even stomata, which is the leaf, uh, where the, uh, for the leaf um, have, takes the carbon dioxide in, they've looked at the number of stomata in the leaves, with old leaves and so on, the date, they carbon date the leaves. And you can find that the variations of processing needed in that as well. But I think at that time they didn't have our politicians, you know, pay a bit of a tax and they could have controlled the weather then, as uh, David Parker seems to think he can do now. Yeah. Now, there's nothing we can do, really. Um, I had a company ring up and they were serious. They wanted to take the carbon dioxide, I've forgotten the number, they wanted to use 700 or 800 Boeing jet engines. In a, and suck the air down deep into the water and get the water, the ocean, soak up the carbon dioxide. Concept, fine. Method, stupid. Because if you ever blown a, a straw into a, a liquid, you bring, it bubbles up all, you blow in, blow the stuff down using these jet engines, it would blow up into a massive tidal wave of water when it comes up. The water, the, the air stays as a bubble. It doesn't disperse as droplets of air. So anyway, they, they weren't it was uh, so serious. They were willing to pay me a fortune to work on it, but I said, no, it won't work. If, 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 I'm sure if they um, thought you could um, 
change the weather by taxing. It would have been done long before Jasper. But um, <laughs> that's a cynical view. Just for the layman and me, I've always been mystified by um, stories of cloud seeding to make yeah. it rain. How does that work, or is it is it even a real thing? I, I mean, oh, it's yeah. an American thing yeah. that I've read about. Very, very real, and uh, there's a lot of concern now. Uh, for example, it started many years ago when they had uh, they using I think it was silver chloride, I think very fine silver chloride, and they in America, and I'm guessing 40, 50 years ago now, and um, they to actually form seeds, droplets. See, see, water vapor, water condenses on. On small particles, um, it could be organic particles, or it could be in just dust particles, and or together, the water droplets get together. So the idea of seeding was to take an area which is very dry and create rain. The object was very good, but now there's a guy in America, and he was studying for thirty years. He took the rainwater and snowfall at the beginning of every for thirty years when in his area. And he found that this, I've forgotten the numbers, but he went the silver, we're still using silver based materials, but the silver went up something like 30 to 40 times over the last 30 years. So they're still doing it. Uh, it's a biological weapon as well. It can, you, can, you can put stuff in there and it biologically gets into the air and into our water. Uh, into our water, it gets ultimately washed into the rivers and so on. Trace, and it could be trace elements and so on. So it is a serious thing. but it has been used in uh, over in um, Middle East, off Egypt, there where it's tried, and they've actually can change the shape. And I've seen pictures of showing a triangle of area where the plane's flown, where the water's been contained in it. So yes, it's possible. Yes, it's re realizable. Yes, it sometimes can be good, but in bad hands or with the wrong materials, it could be very bad. Now it's. If you go on the web too, you'll find on the geophysical type of stuff, you, you'll find the jet planes that have nozzles sticking out of their jets. Others have planes with tanks inside them with stuff that you can just spray out the back of it. So it's very real. And um, yeah. The the earliest reference to this, to cloud seeding that I have found, gentlemen, is uh, Seymour Hirsch. He's the, he was a Pulitzer award-winning journalist. His article in 1972 published in the New York Times then titled Rainmaking is used as a weapon of war by the U.S. which described how the U.S. military had been seeding clouds in Asia, which of course was during Vietnam. Yeah. Mm -hmm. This is also something that was collaborated in Indian military history journals that I read uh, yeah. growing up. This for someone yeah. you know, who's never heard of this before, you might like to look up Operation Popeye on U.S. Yeah. military history journals online, and they speak about the fact that how, you know, 60 years ago, these uh, geniuses, they managed to increase the length of the Vietnamese, managed to double the length of the Vietnamese monsoon. Yeah. The operation, I think they codenamed it Make Mud, Not War, to you know, <laughs> defeat yeah. Vietnam. And 60 years later, you talk about it, and it's a conspiracy. Yes, well, it's, it's like... A lot of things that people start off like AI, the IR, artificial intelligence, you start off with good ideas and so on, and then it becomes can be misused and abused, and then, of course, now um, violated. And uh, some of the universities are now saying that students can't use a computer to answer their questions, they've got to write them out. So, because they can download it from the AI, put it, put the words in and get the best essay you want. And if sometimes on the climate stuff, if you put your stuff in on climate and you they find, or you mentioned you're interested in this and this, and they find out in your 
intonations that it's you don't believe in carbon dioxide they'll they'll gear it to your answer very cunning because it's artificial intelligence okay so, so um just in recent weeks we've had um some feedback asking us to do a topic called about chemtrails now i don't know whether chemtrails are real or imaginary but some people believe that they are a worthy topic for us to investigate so have you heard of chemtrails Jeff? yeah well it's the same thing seeding and chemtrails it's the same same thing you can do it in a zone you can just seed or you can have jets flying across and you'll see different patterns and some people of course all gone paranoid now they they, they think everything's seeded all the time but they had not a thing in the paper recently where the some planes were flying around at night and they're probably pilots learning to fly at night but they call them seeding planes you see because it rained and then of course if you have a lot of rain it's caused by seeding and and you end up i'm not saying it has not i'm, I'm not saying that at all i'm just saying that it's uh needs investigation but it needs people it's like a lot of things are hidden you, you don't know but chemtrails are real and uh, they can be natural or they can be um caused by injection into the jets or injection from the wings and you've seen those on the web you'll show nozzles coming mm. from the wings or from the back of the plane or in the jets itself well it's just the nefarious use of um technologies that bothers me i mean i'm not anti anti um evolution of good ideas it's when they're used for nefarious gain or means yeah. that, that bug me so look one thing we, yeah, you know, we're an hour into this interview almost, and one thing we haven't talked about is um, some of your, your, as I for the layman inventions, your technologies that you developed, your ideas, your is it called fluid, uh, or you'll correct me, fluid dynamics, uh, things like that. You've yeah. you've been right at the cutting edge of some very big things, and um, I have to say it was a colleague of ours that uh, put me onto you and said. You need to interview this man. He's done more than most New Zealanders would ever know about. So, Jeff, we'd love to we'd love to break out some of your your best ideas. Oh yeah, well look, it's it's uh, uh, like a lot of things. But how can we say cross pollination is is the is often the way thinking outside the box and then build another box and think outside that box. And that's that's what I've been interested in because there are mechanisms that are core. Are, cause and effect mechanisms and there are mechanisms that are not being used for example i'll give you an example and it's a simple one a canoe going down a river doesn't go down side on it goes long lengthways and if you put it inside on it'll turn so and the canoe in the middle of the river goes faster than the canoe near the edge because there's a profile a velocity profile so what i did basically was take fibers and i put them in a fluid stream and I pumped them at a high speed, not too high speed, only about 20, 30 meters a second, into a rotating disc. Now, it was actually in Glad Saxa in, in Copenhagen when they made coffee. It was, in fact, Naira Atomizers, the name of the company, Naira, and they had a rotating disc, and I pumped it on the underneath side of the disc. And the liquid fibers, they went, the suspension was only about 3%. It traveled from almost five to 10 meters a second to 50 meters, 150 meters a second, and then left the tip. And as it left the tip, the big particles, the sand went in one zone, the big particles went in the other one, and, and so on. And the clumps in that in another zone. So we could have 
around this this is a screen it was um a way of separating particles now as you know in your kitchen if you take a kitchen sieve or if you take a uh, in your garden if you have a little box with grids in it you, you put the stuff in and you shake it around and the dust forms through and little stones stay on top or in the kitchen the big hunks won't go through and so it's called a barrier screen you make little holes and little holes or big holes depending on what you want now this way it was totally against barrier it was saying who cares about a barrier there's no restriction we'll just use shear and forces to separate and that's how that one worked now out of that came other things and i i won't go into that but I, I, my main thing was what when when you go into an into an industry and they're doing something i'll give you one an opposite kind of thing a company in auckland uh, was making wallpaper and they wanted change to a new embossed wallpaper that means the coating expanded when it heated up and formed an embossing it was it, so it wasn't a smooth flat paper it was now had embossing and you've probably seen embossed wallpaper and then i had to slow the machine down so they called me in because i was in infrared and so i took a plastic pipe it was about uh, 200 millimeters in diameter quite big 150 200 millimeters i put slots in it and put a fan on it and when i came in they set it up for me and they said where's your heater i said i'm not having a heater and they said well we want to get speed the machine up we need more heat i said no you don't it's not heat that's the problem. Your problem is when the vapor comes from the coating, it stays and travels with the coating. So I can scavenge it away. I can expose the next part to the heat because it's molecules. So sometimes you've got to get rid of the molecules between the object and the other thing, which uh, which um, uh, then allows the heat to get out. So by and another another example. Another company making uh, in Auckland, Penrose, making um, powder-coated coat hangers. And they, when they ran white, yellow, and other light-coloured stuff, they had to slow the machine right down. And But someone heard about me doing infrared. They called me out and I said, well, we, 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 our machine speeds are so low, black and red and that are terrific. We, we can form powder-coated coat hangers. So I said, give me a pair of gloves and a piece of whatever it is, wood or a, a, a tray, ideally. So I held the tray near the objects of white stuff coming through, and they cured. And they said, fantastic, but you're not heating any. I said, no, what I'm doing is I'm firing the infrared energy back on the, the, um, on the coat hangers. So now I'm getting double use. He said, oh, beautiful. We don't need to buy new heaters. I said, no, no, what you did is, is a, but he said, we'll buy some of these reflectors. What do you, what do you reckon? I said, no, 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 you buy readmitters. If you buy a reflector, it only lasts two weeks, but if you buy a emitter which absorbs the energy and fires it back again at the speed of light, then of course you just have a, you've now changed the situation where the, it gets multiple issues. It's feedback of the energy. And uh, that, that's pretty important. Uh, how can we say it's 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 like how how does a thermos flask work? See, a thermos flask has got a, a mirror on the inside and a and a vacuum, but in its own. So when the heat from the coffee or goes through the glass into the mirror set, it fires it across the vacuum, and the other side is mirrored, and it fires it back again at the speed of light. So it gets its own back. Now it's firing back like a machine gun. Uh, of course, it's 186,000 miles a second, 300,000 kilometers a second. So what happens is it's you're you're not losing much. The only bit you lose is on the outside, 
the thick glass slowly warms up and after your coffee is much cooler late in the afternoon. Now, why does it work? Well, it works because you're reusing the radiant energy. You might say, well, that's that's not new. Yes, it is. If you don't reuse it, you're wasting it. So one simple thing in, in, in any invention, and I'm not using it as an invention, I was just using it as a principle, you actually look at what's happening and then you use what is happening to make it an object to utilize that to, to, to it. So I'll give you another couple of others. Um, I took fibers, hammer waste paper, hammer milled it into single fibers, sucked in fertilizer, dust, not fertilizer, I formed pellets. And when you drop them from an airplane, the particles, you know, in a wind, fertilizer dust gets blown to the next paddock or the other guy's paying the bills. It doesn't pay the bills. He gets a free load of fertilizer. These landed exactly where you wanted in the paddock when they crop dusted. And so there were pellets, had fertilizer inside. Of course, I was aiming to paper mache New Zealand. <laughs> Not really. <laughs> I was uh, using, using waste paper. And so the, when it rained, it slowly elutriated or dissolved the fertilizer into the paddock and um, and you uh, fibers did, did, did degenerate anyway. They're made out of carbon, they're carbon-based material, cellulose, and so there's no problem there. And so that was one. But the, the one before that was at the Liquid Fuels Trust Board of New Zealand said we've got this coal in down the South Island and it breaks up, it's friable. And I said, good, well, let's suck the coal, not the coal, big hunk of coal, just the dust like a vacuum cleaner into the fibres, like which are hammer milled and now formed like like cotton wool, and formed a formed a little particle and put a little bit of binding in with it and made a particle and now we've got the coal dust now being used. The the fibres were made from dry newsprint, and we had a new coal particle where we could now use the coal. And so that was the type of thing is is to say, well, what have they got? Um, what have we got that we're not using and how can we use it better? So, so Jeff, sorry to interrupt. What was that last point about the coal particle? What was its use? I didn't quite get. Well, it's dust. That... It's such a friable coal. It's a very yes. rich coal, carbon and hydrogen, and it breaks up very easily, forms a lot of dust. Now, the dust is use useless. So they sell the coal, but they can't sell the dust. So I took the dust and made it into a particle, a, a pellet, and of course, you need a bit of binder to hold the particle together. It's still dry. It's dry coal inside the fibers. Yeah. Now, that this was all because one day, and this is way back, New Zealand steel. They are pumping iron ore in from the iron ore from the beach. You know, they're making iron ore from uh, and uh, hydraulically. They're pumping in special pipes, and the, the pipes would wear out in six months, nine months, a year. And they had to have special coating on the inside, a special um, lining on the inside. So I took the, the coal, uh, sorry, the iron ore or the iron material particle, and I could, and I, I had fiber suspension, about 3%, 2%, and I poured in the coal and transported it down the pipeline. And when I stopped, I turned the pump off, the coal, the Particles of sand or iron ore couldn't settle because the fibers were in the way. So now I formed a new system. And of course, when they, this is, this is all didn't take off, by the way, they were very serious. They hadn't built the pipeline at, um, at, um, 
it New Zealand Sterile then, and they were very serious about that. It was too early. It was just a few weeks before their decision, and I showed you if you stop the pump, and so I later on I did that with I took stones and pellets and at Winston Quarries before the Winston you know, the quarries in Auckland where they've now got houses. There's a big quarry there, and I used to pump big in big pipes, two hundred millimeter pipes, uh, all sorts of things stones, whatever it is, in fibre suspensions. And this, when you stop the pump, they say, oh, this pump's going to block up. No, I said, I'll come back next week. I came back a couple of weeks later, I pressed the button and it took off because the particles stayed in the suspension. So I came up with the idea of mining a forest. Rather than chop logs in and bring them in, why don't we put pumps, pipe out there, big pipes, and pump short logs in in a fibre suspension? Stop it, and you need a, less than 1%. They stay up there. They don't settle because there's fibres in the way. So when you start to pump up, it just flow again. So they're the types of things. Now, some of those so, things were uh, got a report. So, what, so sorry to interrupt. What was the most commercialised and um, lucrative concept oh, that you developed? Question. That's another question. Very difficult thing at the university. Very difficult to get uh, Winston Winston's at the time, the technical director. They gave us a hundred thousand dollars to develop that, and then they closed it all down. So I had the Winston Quarry. I had their big tanks that they used for pumping clay and all sorts of things. I was pumping fiber suspensions and stones and all sorts of. And they thought it was a, the main. It was a, ants pants. But they closed it down. Of course, then it was very hard. You had to take patents in my day. And when I'm saying the 70s and 80s and 90s, you had to take out patents. The university often didn't pay you to take out patents. You had to get funding yourself. And this meant a lot of things. So a lot of these things I just published because I just, I was on with the next thing. I've got another thing to come up, you know. So it was just a joy of discovery, I think, more than anything. <laughs> so I wouldn't say anything was lucrative at all. But it was fun. You know, meanwhile, we just you spoke about NZ Steel and NZ Steel. Isn't it them, Don, that have recently got the taxpayer-funded uh, millions? Oh, yeah, but but uh, they're doing it now. There's a lot of skullduggery going on now. And I would use that term, skullduggery. Yeah, 140, was it 160 million? And seeing that you spoke about coal and, you know, reusing coal dust in South Ireland, yeah. we recently have come across one of our listeners who wrote in to us saying that, they are, you know, they obviously have some sort of a place, their concessionaire on Dockland, and they've been sent a questionnaire by Dock asking them, do they use coal since they are on Dockland because Dock has signed up to a net zero emissions? So this is where we are heading meanwhile. Yeah, but see, it's, it's not only stupid, it's worse than stupid, because if you go to the BP report, 40 years ago, 80% of the world's fuels were oil, gas, and coal. Ten, ten years ago, it was oil. In the latest report, 80% is still oil, gas, and coal. Why? Because the third world is becoming now richer. People want more electricity and they, as they develop in India and Africa and so on. They're going to have more power stations. Where's the fuel coming from? You see, and of course, the wind turbines are uneconomic. Takes nine years before they pay for themselves. You've got to build all this steel and tubes and reinforced concrete, and you've got to put it in, and then you've got to use uh, four hundred liters of oil a year just to keep the bearings. And you can't have the big turbine sitting there because the bearings are so big. They what they call Brunel hardening. They actually hit the sit on the bearings and they damage the bearing because the metal flows. 
it's 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 a under it's not flowing in a sense, but it squeezes out, and so you, the bearing is shot. So the bearings have to be replaced, or you've got to have another motor up there turning the turbine over, so it doesn't go to Brunel Hartnett. And so you've got four, at least fourteen thousand wind turbines in America lying idle, chopping them up. The blades, you know, fifty meters or more, and they're chopped in half and just buried. You can't because the graphene-based materials, um, and they're just chopping them up. And it's just a joke. A lot of companies are going bust in Sweden and Germany because they have to have subsidies to, to keep them going. So, and wind. Look what happened recently in Australia. The Joan Oversight, you'll go and go on the Joan Oversight, you'll find that a few months ago, the wind dropped almost to zero right across Australia for about 13 days. And there was, I've forgotten the numbers, but let's say there's 300 units of written down power that shipped kilowatts, it could be megawatts, gigawatts, and it was only doing about five of the whole of Australia. Absolutely shocked. Now, same with solar. Solar is is technically good, but try and get rid of the solar panels. The, the material on the surface is, it's, it, if it goes into the ground system and water gets into it and so on, it's going to damage, poison the water and so on. And also, they don't work at night. You've got to keep polishing the outside. And the proof, easy proof, is just recently the fires in Canada. What happened to all those, all of them up in northern America almost went to zero. Because they're coated in dust from the fire. Yeah, look, it just depends who's uh, who's got the coin uh, at the end of it, isn't it? And um, certainly, there's a lot of people getting fairly fairly wealthy out of uh, peddling the wind and solar uh, agenda. Uh, Jeff, just before we wrap up, is there anything else we can talk about? Uh, let me just change the subject to give you some idea how we don't know what's going on. And just take the Arctic, I want to take the Arctic, just to back on the climate change. The Arctic Ocean, Arctic, um, say the uh, northern pole, north pole, the Arctic ice shelf loses about 10 million square kilometres every six months. Every six months, 10 million. Goes from about 18 down to about seven or eight or something, six, seven or 16 down to six. You, you know, that order, it loses 10. Now, 10 million square kilometres. Do you know what that is? Australia is 7.7 million square kilometres. So the size of Australia melts every six months and reforms in the next six months. Now, if you fly to Darwin, that's not there. Perth's not there. Hobart's not there. Melbourne's not there. And six months later, it's all back there. That's how big it is. And, of course, on the Antarctic, the Antarctic has got it's the highest continent in the world, 2,500 metres, driest, of course, the lowest uh, humidity. And you've got 16 million square kilometres. Now, that's almost the size of Russia. Russia is about 17 plus. So imagine two times the size of Australia melts every six months. So you've got two Australias melting. Let's take a U.S. as just a bit bigger than Australia. So you've got a US and Australia melts in six months, and the US and, the, and Australia reforms in the next six months. Now, they don't talk about that. And that's what I'm saying is that they're not being honest about what's actually happening. And, of course, they're saying climate change is some of the stuff in the South Pole is, is affecting. Yes, but look underneath you know, Southern America. There's a massive cleavage and hot waters coming up from underneath the and melting that from underneath, you see. So what we've got, if you like, the bigger picture stuff, 
the average person doesn't know about the fact that Antarctica floating ice, by the way, the Arctic's all floating ice, but Antarctic floating ice shelf, it's massive the amount that's destroyed every six months and formed every six months, and it's natural. It's been going on for years. So if you take that issue, forget about some of these other issues that we could investigate and argue over and so on, but, yes, water is certainly different. And it um, certainly changes the structure. Remember, it said it floats in itself. The only fluid that floats in itself. So otherwise, everything underneath would be crushed. <laughs> and and you also mentioned uh, not too long back in this interview, Jeff, that uh, may most of the world's volcanoes was that the word you use is un- are underwater. Yeah. So one wonders how much effect that would have. You know, as a layperson, to me, that's the next question that comes into my head: that well, how much of yeah. that melting of the polar ice is due to those. Well, it could be, but there's, it is in places. But if you just take another example, I've uh, forgotten how many kilometres due west of, and I'll lock this into White Island in a minute. The Japanese were studying the temperatures of, this, of the Pacific Ocean, and I'm guessing it's two or three or 4,000 kilometres to the right of New Zealand. I don't know. I can't remember the numbers. But they were five degrees warmer than average, and they published a paper. They were really concerned about it. And of course, the the warm water was affecting it, and the, so there's obviously stuff going on underneath. Mm. Six months, nine months later, White Island. So White Island blew up, and it's all tied in with the same connectivity with this tremendous hot water situation. Now I've not studied it; I've just read about it. Mm-hmm. But, um, but there's there's another case in point where information is available, but they're not going to talk about it. Or oh, there are factors that are interacting factors. Now, just today's paper, did you see that new uh, fault line that they found out the back of Pukekohe? There's a new fault line out. They've just discovered it because they've got new techniques in today's paper. So there's a lot of things that are happening or a lot of things that are existing there. And the geological fault lines are, are quite massive. Um, we got, of course, goes right through um, Wellington, as you know, and out to White Island up that way. So we've got a lot of effects caused by activity that's not just in the air. And, of course, we don't talk about currents. We don't talk about waves. We don't talk about movement of water. Wind, roaring 40s and all of that. Yeah. Well, if we didn't have, for example, if we have a, a conveyor belt that goes warm water up across the top of France between England and France, if it didn't exist, we, you'd have ice. You'd walk across from England to France. And it goes up near Finland and, and dies out. Now, I've been up there. I used to live in Finland for a while, uh, in Sweden for a while. And just north of Sweden, you could drive across. And they, they still can do it up further up. Drive across on the ice. They don't go up the top of Sweden. They just drive across the ice, come up to Finland. But it was quite low down this uh, uh, some years ago. So that that stream of water alone. So there's and that's not that's not solar. That's kinetic energy. It's it's caused by all sorts of facts. It's not just a single fact. And these currents are there all the time. And and I'll give you another one. When you pick up ice from from the if you've got ice from, from the seawater and you go to say the South Pole and eat it, does it taste salty? No. Where does the salt go? It's just formed ice. And there's tons and tons per hour being formed. Pick up ice anywhere and you can eat it. 
Why? Because the, it extrudes the ice, the salt goes down into the water and you form this very thick brine. And these fingers of brine are traveling up from the South Pole, for example, towards Australia or New Zealand. And they're below the surface and they're much thicker than our brine concentration. And what happens? They slowly diffuse. We haven't talked about diffusion yet. That's a natural, just a slow moving of molecules. They get fine. And after just below Australia or just below New Zealand, it comes back to normal salt concentration again. But the concentration of salt when it forms, uh, where the brine forms, brine, B-R-I-N-E, it's quite interesting. And I mean, there are a lot of factors. Now, there's a concentration driving force. And of course, once you got to, and people talk about, oh, the concentration, this concentration, that, I said, yes, that's true. But once you go to droplets, you can't talk about concentration. You've got to talk about population. Now, population, now you've got to talk about size. Then you talk about size, you've got to talk about the surface structure of the droplet. And then you've got to talk about the dynamics of droplet. Now, I presented a paper at a chemical engineering conference recently, in a, a couple of years ago, talking just about how the droplets interact and the forces there are enormous. So while you've got these guys doing modelling on climate change, look, within one hand span of your mouth, the humidity is different. If you go to the other side, imagine humidity in the other side of your room, it's humidity is different. So there's a humidity driving force, driving water vapour to, 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 to um, reach an equilibrium. And that's, if you like, that's the key thing which is not talked about the biggest principle in this world, which is not understood, I think, is equilibrium. Equilibrium occurs when there's no more driving force. Yeah. And we started off a talk and saying there's resistances and driving forces, and that's what I've been involved in and love. I'm very conscious of the fact, uh, Jeff, that you've repeatedly said, and we've not even touched that, and, and <laughs> we definitely we have to get you back. But just before we go, and mm -hmm. I, I think we should wind it up, I would like your comments on the state of this the whole debate now and i'll give you something this was an uh statement by david frame you know mm -hmm. who's been doing modeling for the ag sector who sort of rebutted your article and saying that our impact on climate is very clear he began by stating jeff duffy's article the methane stands way off track contains scientific errors and omissions. And Dr. Duffy is entitled to have his opinions, but he's wrong about many issues of science, except one thing, we should not use rudimentary models for, stimula for simulation or prediction without strong experimental data. But he goes on to cite IPCC and he completely, that's, that's his stance. What does this tell you about the state of the whole climate and you know anthropogenic warming? Okay. Well, where are we at? Yeah. Okay. Well, first of all, I don't know David Frame. I've never met him. I've never sent anything to him. He's never responded. I don't know how he got that unless you sent it to him. Okay. So the first thing people, and he's done this before because it was a meeting with the New Zealand Climate Coalition. So what he does, and not, this is normal. It's sad, really. It's not, I'm not blaming him. They attack you. You haven't got the thing. They attacked Wilhelm and Happer. Uh, now they've done a absolutely brilliant 40 page stuff. The average person couldn't look at the mathematics of that. And Professor Dr. Sheehan is traveling around New Zealand now, he's giving nine talks. And uh, Ground Swell, I think, involved in all that, showing that methane is it's impossible for methane. Now, 
he, he, I believe, and he accused Hepper and Wilhelmsen as kind of being just kids in the block. These guys are cream de la cream. They are mathematicians. They're also in the top university, one of the top universities in, in America. And Hepper's been around for a long time. And um, he was, um, if I remember rightly, he was Trump's advisor on climate change for a year. So, first of all, and given a good example, today in Parliament, in America, they attacked the guy giving evidence today, Durham. Three of them attacked him for his personality and his family and his, his kudos. They didn't look at the evidence he presented, which is available to everyone, evidence. They attacked him. And that's what happens, you see. What I would do, I would love to talk with him, sit down and talk through the issues and so on. But I've got no vested interest. I'm got getting paid. Um, I've retired. This is a personal interest. I've been involved for many years, much longer than he has, on dynamics. And I haven't talked to you about the dynamics of uh, of of what's happening with droplets. And I'm not just talking about droplets. I've worked at the the uh, the gradients, the the mass transfer and simultaneous heat and mass transfer. I specialise. I've taught it for forty years. I also taught, by the way, control, process control, automatic control. So I've done a lot more things which you haven't talked about today. But I'm not trying to win. I'm just saying well, let's look at the factors and have an open discussion. But I'm afraid once you turn information and set someone up on a pedestal that he's got the gold, and you make everyone else an idiot then, of course, you and you base that on truth, then you'll get all this stuff that doesn't work. And I'll prove it to you. Within a few years, it won't be happening. That's Same the cause of truth. I don't it's mind. Interesting. It's interesting. You um, uh, you talked about the, the dynamics, um, and you've got lots of dynamics going on in your in your um, presentation today. Uh, but I think the dynamic we need to fix fix is really uh, in the science fraternity. There does seem to be a dynamic that is seriously politicised, and uh, you know, as you say, the vested interests are, are pushing a barrow. Um, but but you know, Jeff, we live in hope. We live in hope that um, honesty and integrity will will rise to the top. And uh, and we thank you for for your candid um, observations and presentation today. You've 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 seriously done a big job you're probably one of australia's best imports to new zealand or exports <laughs> from australia best import to here um because you came here about 1970 i think but yeah. i'd just like to alert the listeners to a um chapter in a book that you're part of um from jennifer marahasi uh the facts climate change the facts 2020 and i know jeff you have a chapter or two in there that's well worth reading of course and uh, that was published by the institute of public affairs in australia in 20 20 or thereabouts, uh, I assume, yeah, 2020. Um, and, yeah, and and we'll put up the links to your papers that you've given us uh, if we can and encourage the listeners to come to our RCR radio, you know, Reality Check Radio's Greenwash page and find those links. So um, on behalf of Jaspreet and I and our listeners, we're indebted uh, that you've given us your time um, and we thank you for it and look back, look to having you back um, in the very near future. Fantastic. Great. Well, thanks so much. Enjoyed it very much. And uh, it's also an interesting topic because it opens up discussion for interacting forces, interacting effects. 
rather than just criticise the hell out of someone. I'll give you finishing off. I gave a talk at the University of Auckland, and the majority of people just were dumbfounded. They were engineers, by the way. And the top engineer that ever went through University of Auckland got a high distinction, well above everyone else. And he said, I don't believe you. He went back to Brisbane and over the weekend. He said, I'm too busy. He rang to say, I'm Jeff. He said, I've been studying all weekend. I couldn't put it down. I see where you're right now because Professor McKittrick in Canada said, it's water vapour, it's water vapour, it's water vapour. And that's <laughs> the story. So, well, he's hoping that we can see that water water vapour. And by the way, it's not just vapour, it's droplets and uh, ice crystals. It's that simple. Thanks, Jeff. Good Thank you so much, Thanks Jeff. It is a water vapour. Okay. Thanks, <laughs> Thank you. Bye. Jaspreet Boparai and Don Nicholson with Greenwashed on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Welcome back to Reality Check Radio with Don and Jaspreet and Greenwashed. And uh, I hope you had a coffee in the break and uh, ready for our next segment. But um, And I hope you enjoyed the free-ranging discussion we had with Professor Jeff Duffy. And I hope he has convinced some of you that um, really the methane uh, that we often talk about is masked by H2O, which is his favourite topic. Um Water vapour has already absorbed the very same uh, uh, infrared radiation of CH4, so CH4 can't do anything. And, yeah, I hope Jeff has given you a whole lot more food for thought, uh, including right down to geoengineering and and other stuff. I mean, I dare say the best thing you could do on top of listening to that interview was go and research Professor Jeff Duffy. There is lots of stuff around, including the book that we mentioned near the end of that uh, that interview. But um, it, for a bit of lighter going, um, I just thought a good news story that I'd like to reflect on for a moment, Jasper, was how it says the headline in the paper here today um, that it's over and out for Southland Mountain Radio Service. And I thought, oh, What's that about? I'd better look at that. And of course, it, 55 years of saving lives, you might say, in the rugged parts of New Zealand, not necessarily all in the bush, but mostly in the bush, is coming to an end. Now, why is it coming to an end? Well, um, now there's satellites, uh, text messages through satellite systems uh, that you send to an, a, an American base and the SOS comes back to here and, and off you go from that point of view. But the people that were involved in search and rescue for the 55 years, they all, uh, we owe them um, our gratitude. Um, they they did a fantastic job. And this guy in the last uh, photo here is a guy, Stuart Burnby of Tiana, and he's going to give the second last weather broadcast next Friday. So, um, you know, it's, there'll be a lot of New Zealanders. Some of some of their family won't have come out of it well, but you know, at least they've perhaps been recovered. But a lot of New Zealanders and foreigners, for that matter, will have um, been rescued by search and rescue. It's clearly still going to continue. Just new technology has made this uh, organisation redundant. But thanks for all their service. Uh, I think we should say that at least. And the other little story, little snippet that was quite humorous, I thought was... Um, you have a provenance uh, gin happening to be to be brewed and distilled over in Stewart Island, and wow. you know I wasn't sure that there was gin drinkers on Stewart Island. I thought they'd be real beer drinkers, but no, there's a few fellas over there making gin, and they're using uh, botanicals 
um, uh, such as Manuka, Rimu, and Rimu, and Horopito to give the gin its unique flavour. And I did think where were they getting their main ingredient from, but sadly it has to come from the mainland. It's imported to Stewart Island, the juniper berry. But there you go, um, uh, a provenance, uh, an almost a full provenance gin is coming from Stewart Island. Uh, could be the world's southernmost gin. Could be that. It, but could I wonder be that. if they... Yeah, it looks like these guys are self-determined. Doesn't doesn't say they got funding from anyone either, Jasprit. So we'd probably be happy about that. Absolutely, there's something to be said for free market economics. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and the innovation that comes with that. And and on the other side of the paper on that same day, the bad news story was the absolute waste at um, the Tipukanga, is it called the Polytechnics, an eighty-six million dollar budget hole. And I remember when. Um, the Southland Polytech was sort of taken over by the state. There was a $35 million credit in the Southland Polytech's bank, and clearly that's been swallowed, and now they've got an eight, nationally an $86 million hole. I don't know when we're going to get politicians that um, uh, give us the value that we need out of our, our taxpayer dollar. And it's not to say that we didn't know this was going to happen. I remember, and at that point, uh, was it uh, Chris Hipkins, who was the education minister? I seem to think he was. And there was this mm. whole campaign when he came down to Invercargill about those orange signs, uh, stand up for SIT. Mm. We knew this was going to happen. Even a fool could say this was going to happen. Mm. This is how socialism works. You centralize, you centralize. The economics don't matter. And you come to a stage where the state becomes the only viable employer. Yeah, and that's a sad um, place to be, as we know that, as I keep saying, um, the environment pays for all of this, just depends which environment you're talking about. And currently, that's the taxpayer's environment that um, is funding that mistake. Uh, and, but of course, the genesis of all that is even further back, as I keep saying. Um, the environment of some kind is paying for it, whether it's the land, the sea, or the scenery. And I don't know, we have to keep telling that story because mm-hmm. people people don't value that we're all using the environment every moment of every day. It's just by varying degrees. And, and um, another story we will keep, and I mean on repeat, ad nauseum, keep talking about here is DEI. Diversity, Equity, Inclusion, ESG, Environmental, Social and Governance Factors Reporting, SDGs, the UN Sustainable Development Goals, and all of these. And I have often said, and I'll repeat, ESG, or your Sustainable Development Goals, the SDG, they are just a social credit system. You comply or else. It is literally just that. But this word equity is something that I I have a particular issue with because it depends upon outcomes, equality of outcomes, not equality of opportunities. So how do you achieve that? In my house, I've been lucky enough to be brought up in a two-parent household, my brother and I, same set of opportunities given same parents, same schools, literally, other than when he went to the military training academy. We were in completely different places in life. We have different, and we have different aspirations, actually. 
which is where we are at different places in life. But if you start suddenly looking at start looking at us through an equity based lens, my parents could be in a lot of trouble because they haven't been able to ensure that both their kids have reached the exact same place in life. And we, Don and I, had spoken last week about the dual uh, language signages that are going on, which are happy to compromise physical safety due to the increased cognitive load of having to read instructions, road signs in a language that over 90% of New Zealanders don't know because of cultural safety of a language. But another topical issue that came up last whole of last week is uh, the health equity talk that's been going on about how in surgeries now, how in surgeries in New Zealand, ethnicity is going to be given some sort of a weightage here. The exact algorithm I've seen on uh, your FII for your Official Information Act, there have been requests put in by people there today wanting to know how the algorithm works, how much weightage out of, you know, there's other factors that go into determining who gets priority for a surgery. And but the people asking exactly how much weightage will be given to your genes, you know, what ethnicity you were in. There's no details there yet. But this word, the word equity in New Zealand, Don, I don't know when since when have you heard it? I began hearing a whole lot of it during the COVID vaccine rollout. We had headlines, and I can just look and read them out, back of the queue. Health, Maori health experts say, this is September 2021, that there have been equities in the COVID vaccine rollout and Maori and Pacifica should have been given priority. Then the government defended the equity of the rollout, 15th August 2021. Newsroom, the stark inequity of the vaccine rollout. Dr. Raviri Thornui, Omicron, Maori. The government needs to front foot Maori out of catch-up mode to strengthen a faltering tamari rollout when the children's vaccine came out. Each time the word was equity. Each time ethnicity was used. And I, this it's probably no surprise to anyone that I was completely against the vaccine rollout. The mandates of it that were put on New Zealanders, they made no sense, no scientific sense. There were side effects. I have friends living with debilitating side effects who are being told it's in the head and all that time it was being justified by equity. So the very communities that were being hammered, Northland, we know the sort of lockdowns it was put in. The very uh, communities that were being absolutely pushed, bribed, you know, McDonald's and KFC and whatnot, to get the vaccine, you suddenly are worried about equity here? Something stinks. Or maybe it's just a cynical uh, middle-aged woman in me who thinks that way. Don, my right no, over. <laughs> your rant's over. No, it's it's totally valid. Uh, buzzwords come up through um, different forums over time. I mean, there's there's been lots of buzzwords in my life. And the, equity is not a new word to me, but it's it's used uh, all the time now. It was it was never as um, well used as it is now. And of course, um, when I heard about this wait list, you know, this is for surgery, wait list equity adjuster, 
my radar went up. I mean, I, I couldn't believe there would be such a need. As I said before, the break um, or the earlier on in this interview, uh, that I believe we're all, all ethnicities are one, effectively. I don't see there's a need to have an equity adjuster. Um, it should be all on need, all on um, on severity, and there shouldn't be these massive wait lists anyway if we had a functioning health system. You know, we've put more money, every budget I hear about vote um, health gets this big increase, but it's never enough. Um, and it's it, you, you hear about the wait lists getting longer. Why is that? Uh, what is, where is the money falling out of this vote budget? Where is the money falling? It strikes me it's not falling into doing the actual um, enough of the absolute of the surgeries, but going into middle management and compliance. And yeah, you, know, you you definitely need you know, a, a wise uh, wisely managed health system. But gee, everyone that you speak to talks about where we've got overloaded middle management and the real money isn't hitting the ground. So would that be uh, something that needs to be the equity adjuster? It needs to be adjusted at that point. I don't know. But I would, again, don't, I will go back a bit. I'll actually go back a decade ago. Uh -huh. Advocates in South Auckland were at that time demanding of the council to stop the mushrooming of fast food restaurants in South Auckland. They were saying liquor outlets are being placed everywhere around. There's one place uh, in South Auckland where a 1.7 kilometer radius had 38 liquor outlets. Mm. School children in South Auckland around that area, and we know which communities live there. There's mm. Indian, Asian, Maori, Pacifica. They were speaking about the fact that uh, something needs to be done. This needs to be stopped. But at that time, the council said, a council spokesperson says district plans provide for fast food outlets and can't restrict where restaurants are because the owners cook unhealthy food. So when the advocates were saying that South Auckland is becoming a hub for diabetes, heart attacks, crap food, we didn't care, did we? It's well, almost like at times, be it with the vaccine rollout, be it with unhealthy food choices, we have deliberately hammered some communities. I'm playing the devil's advocate here. We didn't care then. But when the fallout comes, suddenly, let's blame racism. Oh, yeah. And and let, let's blame underfunding and let's blame um, everybody else but but ourselves. Um, I'm, I'm big on personal responsibility. And if our, if our education, it seems that too many parents see their responsibility for education to a school entirely and they forget to um deliver the basics back inside the, the the house door the home the in the home um that is around yeah around the need to be healthy and make good choices um and sorry i know this is it's harsh because you don't want to be underscoring the fact that many people don't have a lot um to go, come and go on but we've got systems in place that are supposedly there to hold hold families together and make them have the basics of life at least. So where are we missing the mark? It's not just in Maori and Pacifica. It's in all um, um, 
skin colors in this country or or races. I don't get it. It's it is if, well, I see I see it as divide and rule, very honestly, Don. I've often felt that this is such a convenient excuse. I have grown up in India where religion was our politicians' fodder. Absolutely. Come elections, everything, divide and rule, bits, Sikhs against Hindus, Muslims against Christians, do it. Mm-hmm. When religion, and this might just be my view, and I'm very happy to be corrected, but when religion is not very big in New Zealand, at least not as big as it was in India, skin color, the amount of melanin you and I have, that turns out to be the next available option to politicians. And they are doing it. And boy, have they done the divide and rule in the last few years. Oh, vaccinated it's... against the unvaccinated, landlords against tenants, rural oh, we agree. against we... farmers, all of that, um, you know, rural against townies. Uh, the divide and rule. But that's that's the vintage um, leftist Marxist agenda. Yeah, That's what they do. And um, so I, I don't deny that um, that that division has, has been created and encouraged and it's been talked about. You're almost the victim um, um, mentality is being driven at you through this sort of stuff. And I mean, I'm, I'm deflecting a little bit because social policy is not my big. I'm not big on it. I don't. I'm, you know, I'm a farmer. I don't really know it, but I I do know about respect, and I do know about um, making do with what you've got, and don't whinge about everything that you haven't got if you've got all the options there to go and get it uh, through the system, because that's what the system in New Zealand is all about. I mean, we redistribute our earnings to hopefully make sure we make wise choices through our governance and that the redistribution hits the mark. And clearly it's not hitting the mark um, because we've got, I would argue, bad policies, bad management or poor management um, that don't understand value for money. Now, I I, I just can't see why things are so tough. I don't see why they're so tough, except for this absolutely purposeful division that's being created. I mean, when you can force an entire population, you lose your ah, jobs, lose your houses, ah, lose your 100%. health, unless you get the shot. What's stopping you saying, I mean, ah. I, I couldn't go to restaurants for a year. So what's stopping you saying these sort of restaurants can't be here? This sort of food is not available. Tax sugar, tax fizzy drinks, whatever. You know, but I, again, I'm for freedom of choice, as you said, personal responsibility. But this this whole thing over the last week, it is with a sinking sense of deja vu. I see again what I left behind in India. And going through the details, the what staff reports, the ranking system has received backlash from many people who say it gives priority to Maori and Pacific Island patients where... European New Zealanders and other ethnicities like Indian and Chinese are the lowest ranks. Well, if I wanted to cry foul, I'd say that this January, late January, when my daughter was seven then, broke her arm. It took 48 hours, two full days in the ED for her to be seen. She broke her arm on a Tuesday evening, saw a doctor quarter to five on a Thursday. Was it because she's of Indian ethnicity? Hmm? Should, Should I go there? And you know, I don't even think that way. I There is individual differences. I would rather believe that everyone was under the pump. I've got a daughter who's tough as they come. She bore up with a broken arm and mom's ice bags and uh, nicked up for a couple of days. But this, what are they aiming for? 
this equity that they say, they define it as New Zealanders and Maori dying at different ages. Oh, yes. That's the issue. Well, I don't know uh, how far back you want to go, but I, you sent me a link to um, October 2020, and it's from Medical Council of New Zealand Cultural Safety Baseline Data Report Release and Recommendations. And I looked at that and I read the first few pages and it was about health equity delivered by doctors that talked about um, uh, solutions applicable to other ethnic groups and populations who experience inequitable care. Uh, Talked about all the things we've just talked about, unconscious bias, conscious bias. Um, So this is actually the healthcare systems deciding or declaring that it's been racist all this while. It reminds uh, me of the stuff apology. You remember a couple of years ago, stuff had done this full page apology for being racist, full papers <laughs> over decades towards well, Maori and Pacifica. And that's when I'd canceled my papers. I used to get the newspaper till then. I said I paid for journalism, not propaganda. When I was called to say, why are you a loyal reader of 10 years? I had two newspapers coming home. I'm a voracious reader. Canceling this. And I had to reply then that, you know, this is what I signed up for. Thank you very much. But no, thanks. Tell me. So right now there is five years of age gap or is it seven in, you know, different demographics between a Maori and a non-Maori. A stale, pale, still white male like you, Don dying. <laughs> They've decided it's averages, which is what Jeff Tuffy spoke to mm. us about. Mm. So once they reach this much lauded mythical equity, will they be able to ensure that all Maoris die at the same age and all Europeans die at the same age, all Indians die at the same age? Is that what we have? Is that the utopia here? Oh, that's peas in a pod. Just all happened. Yeah, that'll all be planned. You'll be able, your, your date will be self-detonate. Yeah, 82, that's right. You are Greta, out. A bit like Greta. She said uh, three days ago we were all going to be terminal. Um, that's how accurate that will be. So it's interesting you bring that up because I, I was reading this report and you sent me that link. Mm. And the findings and recommendations, the very first paragraph, acknowledging systemic racism. It's important to firstly acknowledge that systemic racism and privilege exists in the health sector in order to meaningfully address this problem. The report found that while most doctors were aware of the health context for Maori, including colonization and how it impacted on health outcomes, some described difficulty in addressing this in their practice and the system they worked in. Well, if I will, I'll interrupt you here, Don. If they're talking about colonization and equity and the health outcomes, because they are talking about what age people are dying. At what age? What was the life expectancy of Maori in the till the 1800s, then the 1900s, then the 2000s? That's what we should be looking at and seeing oh. has there been any improvement? Oh, no, colonization's definitely not made any difference to that. No, (laughs) of course it has. Um, We've all been massively advanced by our health systems over time and the way we, you know, the the systems we have access to. And I know we all, uh, we've just spent a few minutes rubbishing them, but um, um, we're all, our life expectancy is massively um, enhanced over all of us since. um, I, I went through history paperwork here and from what I see the life expectancy for Maori at at about 200 250 years ago was uh, about 40 
Oh, I thought it was years. even. I thought it was even less, actually. So yeah, okay. Uh, yeah, yeah. About forty was what I was seeing, and it's currently seventy-two. Mm. That's not to say anything else, but it is. How do you generalize human beings that everyone will self-detonate, self-destruct once you reach a certain age? Not a day before, not a late day later, because then it wouldn't be equitable. This report you're speaking of, Don, the um, uh, safety baseline data from the Medical Council of New Zealand, it, uh, it's on the average, the death rate for Maori within 30 days of major surgery is 40% lower, uh, higher than for non-Maori. And so they're, what they're saying is it's only racism that's causing that. So the doctors who were in charge decided when they're going through major surgery, hey, look at this ethnicity. We need to give this patient substandard medical care. So that's how our doctors are uh, performing. There is this report cites a whole lot of other diversity equity issues saying that they take up global uh, data and they talk about a Puerto Rican baby is twice as likely to have a low birth weight than a non-Hispanic and others. Well, Again, speaking from personal uh, experience here, my daughter, when she was born in New Zealand, uh, 2015, she was in the fifth percentile for her birth weight. They said failure to thrive. And my mom was out here for Sarah's birth, first grandchild. And each time I would have a health visitor check up, it would be like, oh, she's not doing well. You know, she's not doing well. And finally, once my mom saw that it was, you know, I was almost getting depressed each time they would come and sort of uh, lambast my mothering capabilities and mom let them have it. This uh, unfortunate visitor, health care visitor, we had, we had that. They're saying that, just breathe. You see her today. She's five foot eight, certainly not underweight. She was less than two kgs at birth. So my granddaughter is just fine. Mom said, I don't. And the woman said, no, no, no. But look at these charts. She's falling down. She's only at fifth percentile. My mom said, how do you standardize babies from all sorts of ethnicities? Can I ask you that? This child inherently has Indian heritage as compared to her mom, who I bore, she says, she's a much healthier baby. So I want you to shut up. Let my daughter. Out of standardization, we are all different. We're all different human beings, different, uh, you know, DNA here. How will you standardize that? Where will this race to the bottom end? Yeah, it, it's nonsense. And of course, um, you read this paper and there, when you when you listen to you, Jasper, you think there's an element they've missed in all of here. And and they how have they made this adjustment to make suit the narrative yeah to suit the outcome of their their paper there's something not not right here but we're living this we're living it um i is it going to change with a change of government i doubt it yeah but there's something going to have to be remedied pretty soon because it just creates that division we talked about and yeah your experience is palpable i can see it uh in your you know how it's how it's affected you and um, good on your but, mother for standing up. But I have never thought of the health system as racist. No, I haven't. No, no, I, no, you no. know, I was just being uh, flippant when I said that, you know, it took Sarah two days to see a doctor with a broken arm. And was it because we are 
which are the bottom, I would still like to believe that, you know, if we find ourselves in dire situations, it would be a need-based priority here. I, I've never seen anything but, um, but that, need-based priorities uh, in, in my experience. Um, so I rather sympathize with the doctors who are being put in this sort of a position because mm, mm. I'm sure none of them would have ever uh, dreamt of this when they were training, not the older ones. The younger ones I am seeing as we are seeing through the curriculum what's being changed and the sort of treaty trainings and all the others they are being given. I I should give credit though today to this uh, mailer that came out from NZDSOS. It caught my attention in my mailbox, and I have well over 500 unread emails. I should state that. I, I'm getting bad. I keep falling backwards. But this one came out this morning, and uh, it somehow caught my attention. It's It was an older interview, actually, by Dr. Dooley uh, late last year, and the smoking gun, where medical practitioner Dr. Bruce Dooley shone a light on what he thought was international interference and New Zealand's medical regulatory processes. He spoke about the fact that there is this international body that they call the FSCB. Federation of State Medical Boards. FSMB, yep. Mm. Federation of State Medical Boards in the US, fsmb.org. And he spoke about the fact that we have uh, are currently there's a Dr. Curtis Walker, who's the chairman of the New Zealand Medical Council. He's also on the board of this US organization. So this doctor is obviously qualified uh, to practice in both organizations. So I just looked him up. And uh, in this US board, the FSMB.org, the Federation for State Medical Boards, he is Dr. Curtis Walker there. He is on the FSMB Workgroup for Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion in Medical Regulation and Patient Care with about a dozen other doctors from all over the world. Ah, no, just correction. Not all over the world, all just American. He's so the only just... one. He's the only one. Um, and I've just noted that. Um, and, oh, of course, yeah. New Zealand's membership of that organisation, which started in 1913, that, mm. that organization only happened in the mid-90s that other countries were involved. So this is a relatively new thing for New Zealand, but you're right. He's there. He's one of about 13. The only all one from- the, all mm. the others are American doctors. So Dr. Curtis Walker, the head of uh, the chairman of the New Zealand Medical Council, is on this American organization, medical, sort of a medical watchdog mm. that you know sort of censors uh, doctors if needed and so on. So he's there on the diversity equity board. And uh, no wonder when the report came out here in New Zealand about cultural safety, Dr. Curtis Walker said, and I quote, we know there is much to do to address the big issues, such as the privilege, privilege Pakeha receive in their healthcare and the underprivilege of Maori accessibility of services importance of Vairutanga in healthcare and empowerment of Maori to make decisions. That's Dr. Curtis Walker. So the DEI, the diversity, equity, inclusion, and now to add belonging is not just 
financial, you know, reporting standards and all. There is no part of our lives today, government, non-government, education, healthcare, that is going away from this. And this is the UN SDGs in action straight away. Hmm. And it's coming inside your farm gate, uh, whether you like it or not. <laughs> yeah. It's hard to believe, isn't it, that this sort of stuff is all around it. It's all pervasive. And uh, it's unchecked. In fact, it's a growth industry. It is unchecked. This report on the Medical Council of New Zealand's cultural safety baseline data report from which uh, John and I quoted Dr. Walker is uh, dated September 2020. And mm. he signed this off. Uh, Dr. David Tippany Leach, along with Dr. Curtis Walker, signed it off saying that support your team, so your medical team, to acknowledge the privilege Pakeha received. It's a professional obligation to deliver healthcare equitably to all. And there's a whole lot of other people who have co-signed oh. that report. Uh, by the cultural, they have a cultural safety yeah. partnership and health equity governance group in healthcare. Well, this professor, professor Tiffany Leach said, colonization, and it's a bit of a repeat of what I said before, colonization and systemic racism has had a significant effect on health outcomes. And we need to understand that inequity is deep seated in our society. It is complex and can make impact on patient engagement in their healthcare and the choices they make. Professor David Tiffany leech i mean yep talk about encourage it so you can i mean there's there's training manuals and recommendations for younger doctors we talk about the majority of doctors are only able to speak a few phrases in terial, such as greetings mm -hmm. however only half of them are regularly using words beyond kiora or puku uh, the stomach which they usually use with children and Doctors are not using theater effectively to engage. Now, I can tell you, I've had a couple of issues when children give you frights and you head off to the hospital with them. The ethnicity of the doctor has never entered my mind at all. At times, I remember one time a son got meningitis. In the, in my stress, the dialect, sometimes I try to focus more carefully on what the doctor was saying, and I like to take notes. And we were in a dire situation. He was really, really sick, uh, having contracted meningitis at six weeks. But the ethnicity of the doctor treating me or my children, Don, would, would you ever think that I can only be able to, you know, relate to a doc? Come on. What no. planet are we living on? Uh, I only know of people that uh, are, you know, as you go into to need care, you just want someone to fix you. Mm. You don't actually um, take note of or, or mind as long as they're making sense and looking like they know what they're talking about and and acting like they um, they know what they're on about. So, yeah, it's a, in, in today's world, that that's um, if if there's any racism in that side of it, it's nonsense. I, look, I imagine there is um, still a bit of it deep set. You know, you hear about the the redneck uh, sort of behaviour of days gone by. I imagine there's little bits of that left, but most most people that I've associated with in my life would not have a bar of what you know, what you're inferring here. It just makes no sense. You just want 
you want to know you're being looked at by the most appropriate person for the job. And if that's um, someone with of a different ethnicity, who cares? As long yeah. as they've got the skills. As long as they've got the skills. And and, and, lear- and learning to Rayo is going to not help one of those people do any of their job. It just isn't. We are short of medical staff. We have yes. people stuck in ambulances at hospitals. Meanwhile, mm. we are going on with these DEI initiatives. And yet, Watia News reported uh, late last year, when we were absolutely struggling, hemorrhaging nurses overseas. Cultural safety lessons. This is whitearnews.com, September 6, 2022. Cultural safety lessons for new foreign nurses. The New Zealand Nursing Council wants to make the Treaty of Atangi and cultural safety a part of induction of internationally trained nurses who want to work in New Zealand. This, this will be included in a compulsory learning module to be introduced in 2024 on, alongside an initial online test and a clinical exam. So even if you need nurses directly, first put them through this. Get the appropriate DEI, STG, ESG, whatever you call those criteria, the social credit scores, get those signed off before you actually get them doing what you got them out here to do, save people's oh, lives in the first place. Yeah, just a just another obstruction. Um, just like you had getting foreign workers in, another obstruction. Just just weird stuff. I but but we've let the brakes have come off this uh, as much as I don't like talking about it all the time 2017 the brakes just were released and mm. 2020 um it went full accelerator the foot was put down hard and now look at uh look at the government we've got at the moment falling to bits in terms of um the number of misdemeanors ministers and others are, are having and are being found out for um is it any wonder we've got um, the accelerator down while we've got such weak governance so, such when I say weak, it's almost like they they're encouraging the stuff that while well, they've got a chance, but but look at them, they're falling to bits around the edges, like Michael Wood uh, not declaring his uh, or selling his shares twelve <laughs> times. He was told couldn't do it. Um, how many Stuart Nash had a misdemeanor? There's so many of them with misdemeanors, and and yet the sort of system we've got around us, Ming Foon. Although I think he may have been wronged um, a few days before he really needed to be um, sort of encouraged to resign. Um, don't know. The whole the whole place is weird. Uh, all I can hope is I wish that the stuff would be exorcised out of all that being um, so that we didn't have to put up with this stuff because it is a it is diverting from real stuff happening at the ground floor. Uh, real um, health outcomes for real people delivered promptly and at a cost that's that's appropriate. I, mean, I like I, that word, exorcised. Exorcised, yeah. I remember going to The Exorcist away back as a, as a youngster thinking, gosh, this is a scary movie. Now it's commonplace on TV, but it was scary at the time, and I've never forgotten the word. Um, but, yeah, get, um, get rid of, in fact, is... A simple way of saying it. So we've, but this is a Western world disease. This sort of stuff. It's not. I know we we talk about our treaty obligations and stuff like that as as eating us up, but this stuff is happening 
probably the way I understand it in Canada. It's going to happen in Australia very soon if they let the voice go through. Mm. Um, yeah, and yet, and yet you've got politicians saying, oh, nothing to see here, nothing to see here. Uh, but, you know, I listened to a counterspin um, video this morning, and it's eight minutes of Trevor Luden talking about communism in New Zealand. And I see it right around me, and I know that people will say, Don, you're crazy, but uh, I think I'm old enough to see it. When have we let all those uh, tags stop us, Don? No. Well, I people are almost afraid to talk to me about this stuff anymore. Um, you know, because I have lifted my game on understanding over the last 10 years when you sit, when you're in the light of day after after you've done a job in Wellington and you've tried to be respectful and you've tried to do it right for all the people you represent, which we had 27,000 names on our database at that time. Uh, I thought, you know, you, you play the game the way um, you're supposed to and, and do it with diplomacy and respect. But 10 or 15 years on, I'm um, a whole lot wiser. I see stuff for what it is. And, you know, uh, people like you also see it the way it is. And there's more and more of us getting to be like this. But it's very hard to have a, a circle of friends that want to communicate like this. If you go into a forum, most people don't want to know about it. I think more people think like this than we than they publicly acknowledge. You know, I've had a very, very average upbringing, just brought up to, you know, respect everyone. And mm. those sort of ideals, I think most parents give. Mm. But we have now taken it to a whole new level. We Getting have. children to see differences where they don't see differences. And, you know, deliberately, deliberately sowing the seeds there. But on the flip side, there's, I have a friend who is uh, from Waikato Tanui. And she is actually hosting uh, Julian Bachelor at her place. She's having right. an open, open evening. Uh, I think after his two talks um, on Monday or Tuesday, one of these nights, uh, they are, I believe he's traveling with his wife, a partner, and they'll be staying the night at uh, her Airbnb. So there is, well, New Zealand is a very small country and there are people seeing this nonsense for what it is. And I'm glad to be friends with, you know, someone who is, who sees things right. really, and and you'll respect her her views uh, and uh, her culture that she if she, if she retains her culture and, and yeah. inside her own home and wherever. Uh, but it's interesting because when I stood for ACT, there was some very um, uh, deliberate Maori participants uh, that we mixed with, and some of them were so anti this elitism that Maori, are, you know, the certain elite Maori are, are pushing on us, and they just. Yeah, you, know, you see them in the ACT Party now. You see, um, you've got Karen Shaw, you've got um, Nicole McKee, and and others, and they don't expect privilege. Um, David Seymour is Nati far to a background. He, yeah, you know, he's talked about how he doesn't expect privilege. Um, yeah, let's hope these people are all true to their word. But I think they they are sincere. They don't see the need to have race based anything. They just no. don't. We, we just have to admit there is a global agenda at play here. Otherwise, why would the voice in Australia yeah. having a constitutionally enshrined racial ethnicity based, uh, you know, 
positions over there. The same thing is happening in Canada, in the US, in New Zealand. A coincidence? I'd say not. Well, you can see in Australia some uh, one of the perpetrators behind us, presenters, promoters of the voice. I shouldn't say perpetrators, perhaps he is the guy Mayo. I mean, you see similar um, attributes in certain players in New Zealand as well. And uh, butter wouldn't melt in their mouth. But dollars and cents seem to flow, dollars seem to flow their way quite well. The average New Zealander of whatever ethnicity, Maori, non-Maori, Indian, Asian, whatever, I think we just want to get on with our lives. There's a handful that are utilizing this time, this moment in history where we are for their gains. And it's, it's not going to end well for them or for any one of us. Humanity, does, these are cycles. They come, they go. I believe I am very optimistic about the human spirit. We always overcome. It's just a matter of, yeah, at what point. Yeah, quite but right. And the Trevor, wheel turns around. The wheel turns. Trevor Luden did talk about New Zealand already being in a revolution. And mm. I know offline you and I have talked about this revolution that's mm. um, occurring. And sadly, it's it's not a pleasant uh, ga- you know, time we're in. It has to be turned back or um, it's going to take a lot, a lot of years to unwind it. Perhaps if we were it, if it right. Ever be in. Perhaps we were right for this reality check. As you keep saying, we are taking our wheels off. Let this be a good lesson of what, mm. what happens when we do that. We were being comfortably numb, as I keep repeating, comfortably numb. And 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 so what we want at the end of all this is a country uh, of, of one, one law, one, um, one, and law and order being upheld across Private all property sectors. rights. Being Private upheld. property rights is fundamental. And of course, that's the big thing. And yeah, people that know me say that's all I ever talk about. Um, you know, if you break down the sanctity of the private property right, you are heading down the slippery slope. And of course, that's where we have been heading for many years, because as I've known over time, the private property right is slowly being eroded. Yep. But look, that's all hard stuff. And um, there's lots more to talk about another day, no doubt. Absolutely. Thank you so much for joining Don and me this morning. And I hope you have a great rest of the week, wherever you are, whatever you do. If it's raining too much, I hope the taps turn off soon. If you need some, here's hoping you get some. Our text number is, uh, the number to text is 2057. And emails, please, at inbox at the rate realitycheck.radio. See you next week, Jasper. See you then, Don. Goodbye. Jaspreet Bopperai and Don Nicholson with Greenwash on RCR, Reality Check Radio.